BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Right. <clears throat> okay. Yep, let me just turn the speaker off on this. All right. Cool. Yep. What? What? You clapped your hands as though that was, no, that was a, like a moment a, of decision. No, I was doing this. I was kind of... I was. I, I once interviewed um, Martin Scorsese for a piece for the Culture Show about... Um, uh, Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom was being reissued in cinemas in the, in the restored version. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we sat, we were at the BAFTA. So Martin Scorsese came in and sat down. He's Martin Scorsese, right? And he sat down. And he's, I, he, he's Martin Scorsese. He's Martin Scorsese. He's Martin Scorsese. Or Scorsese. Or Scorsese, depending on which. Martin Scorsese. That's him, yes. Martin Scorsese. I mean, we've all, we've all talked to Martin Scorsese, but yes, tell me about it. Well, I was your... still quite, quite so Anyway, so he sat down and they sat down and I, you know, I knew what I wanted to, to talk to him about. And then um, the what well, because they had two cameras on it. One of the, one of the cameras and he said, "Can you do a clap?" And I said, "Yes." And Martin Scorsese went, "I think I'll do that." Good and he point. Went, and I thought, "That's fine. That's fine." You made Raging Bull. You made Taxi Driver. You made Mean Streets. I think I'll allow you to do the clap. Yeah, that's a, but was it was it an authoritative clap? Was it the was it the clap of a the, what, you know one of the great directors? Was, it was. It I think. It, I think it reverberated around the building, and it was obvious who was in charge, and it, and it was him. But with your hands, that would have been a strong clap. I'd have thought. If, I, if my hands had done it, it would have blown the cameras over. It would have been. It would have been flappy waves. Just when you were telling that story, it just it did remind. I mean, I've told this before, but when when I was doing the Chris Nolan interview, I think for Interstellar, and, yes, and there was a lot of noise going yes, on. Yes, so he, he stopped the interview, and just for a moment, he stopped being the interview guest, and he becomes the director. Yeah in charge of this multi-million pound operation. <laughs> right. Totally in charge, telling people what to do, and it was great. It was great. Just for a few minutes, I felt like an extra and in it, a Chris it, Was it film. something like there was some work going on next no, door? No, Anne Hathaway, was, Anne Hathaway was laughing and shrieking and having a good time, and That's he was, was clearly a little bit Did irritated. Did he go, oi, no, he Hathaway, said, he said, no. We'll stop. He said, and then he said to his assistant, when is she going to be finished? And they worked it out that she'd be finished in a few minutes' time. And so we just sat and talked about conspiracy theories until, until she'd stopped shrieking. I saw a person who was a bit like you on the television. Uh, oh, I'm so glad. Yesterday. But it wasn't you because it didn't, it was sort of you, but it... But sort of not. But sort of not. The person I saw had a kind of a geezer I know. accent and... And cheekbones. Yeah, the cheekbones. So this is, to, to put this in context, 21 years ago, I, the very first documentary I made, so which is a documentary, unsurprisingly, about The Exorcist, called The Fear of God, which I'm really proud of. And it went back up on iPlayer to celebrate yes. its 21st anniversary and also for Halloween. And it, it, we, it was made by me and Nick Jones, who you know, and we interviewed everybody, Blatty, Friedkin, Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn, Dick Smith, Joe Hyams, the publicist, uh, the priests involved both in front of and behind. I mean, everyone, because it was at the point that everyone was still with us. Actually, one of the strange things about watching the documentary last night, Jason Miller, is, you know, how many people that we interviewed who aren't with us anymore. And so we made this documentary 21 years ago, and it's various versions of it have pootled around on on releases, you know, VHS releases, but none of them were the complete version, which had one of them had an interview with Mercedes McCambridge, who didn't want her version, only wanted her version to be on the BBC. Another one with James Furman, which the Americans who were distributing things that thought that the, that the Americans would like. Anyway, so we, we got this definitive version and we got them to agree to put it up on, on um, 
uh, iPlayer. iPlayer, which was brilliant. So yesterday it went up on iPlayer, and immediately I started getting messages from people, and the messages weren't. I mean, there was loads of messages saying this is, you know, we love this. This is great, and I'm really delighted about it because I'm really proud of that documentary. But many people wrote and saying, "Why is Danny Dyer presenting?" Yeah, this? It wasn't you. It just well, it, and it's the first telly I ever did. And it's really, You've got really a laddie voice. I literally go, I do sound like my own impression of Danny. I go, 25 years ago, an extraordinary motion picture changed the face of modern cinema. I was only 11 when The Exorcist came out, but I was right scared. It was blimey. And it's the really strange... Listener, it's not as annoying as that, I have to say. But it's, it's not but You look amazing. You look like you're in Depeche Mode. In oh, fact, was... you sound like you're in Depeche Mode. <laughs> they were from Basildon, right? Yeah, but it's that kind of... That's where you're from. It's very... My my voice is at least two octaves higher. I mean, it is strange, isn't it? As you get older, your voice does come down. I think you're like... I think you're... It's like you're about to burst into new life. <laughs> obfuscating, obfuscating. Well, it's that not one. like that, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's, yeah. that's not what the words they're saying. But... but so it's the, so all that stuff of me walking around Georgetown, walking up and down the exercise. And I'll tell you, the best thing is the very first link we shot is the one when, when I come, I walk down the steps and I go, and, you know, this is the place where blah, 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 this. And it, and it was here in a very Ruttles fashion. And it was here. And uh, and I've n- I'd never done on-camera stuff before. And um, and they said, OK, you walk down. It was night time to make it look spooky. And I took two steps and I tripped. And I Excellent. fell down the bottom of the steps. Is that in there? Well, not. I mean, there's somewhere. There's the outtake of it. So the very first thing. There, there needs I to be another edit. Bash the side of my head really badly, and and also there's a, the bit when I'm standing outside the BBFC when I just look like a crazy person. But imagine that. Imagine that. But it is really. I mean, it is really, really odd. The cheekbones you're right about. I don't know. I I must have weighed half. The voice is weird. And that, is that still up there? Can we still watch it for a while? Yes, I think it's up there for a few weeks. I think they might keep it up for a while. It's called The Fear of God, 25 Years of the Exodus. But the the most remarkable thing is I don't know what accent I'm doing. No, well, Because that that accent is not how... Nick, who made the doctor, said, you didn't talk like that. He said, I don't know why you started talking. As soon as the camera... It was an affectation. This is what I talk like. That was me. I think I needed to sound streetwise or something. Well, people will let us know. Once they've seen it, they'll let us know where where that accent is from. Um, Elsewhere, Sandy King is in Sicily. I think you'll like this, by the way. She's Sicilian. Oh, no, she's in Sicily, but she's, she's not in, Sicilian. She's in Sicily. Uh, Dear Roadrunner and Wiley Emergency Coyote. <laughs> That's good. Living in somewhat isolated... What? What are you doing I just, now? I just pulled the power lead out. My computer. It doesn't, doesn't stick in very firmly. Living in somewhat... Iso- I'll just carry no, on. No, carry on. I, wasn't, I didn't ask you to stop. In somewhat isolated circumstances, in the small Sicilian town of... I'm going with Kefalu. Kefalu. Okay. Kefalu. I'm an infrequent cinema goer, though avid with entertainment devotee, who was moved to break the habit of uh, this evening by a screening of Ron Howard's recent documentary, Pavarotti, at the wonderfully maintained Art Deco Cinema di Francesca. The great maestro's music has struck a chord at several key moments of my life. None less than the experience as a seven-year-old boy growing up in Hertfordshire of hearing his famous Nessun Dorma soundtrack to the World Cup, which was held in in Italy. This, coupled with the goal-scoring exploits of the BBC's now finest potato chip salesman and the (laughs) tears of Paul Gascoigne, ignited in me both a love of the sport and also what I didn't realise until long after the event was a deep-seated enchantment with the country that has now become my home. Working late, missing the first two showings, I nonetheless decided to pick myself up and walk down to catch the late 10.15 screening. Of? 
the Pavarotti documentary. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, the one that. It's fine. Yeah, the one that emails Sandy about. Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's it's it called Pavarotti. Yes. Yes, fine. The Ron Howard doc. Yes. I arrived and bought my ticket before turning the corner into the auditorium and finding myself the lone member of the congregation. As the film was to be screened again the next day and not wishing to burden the projectionist who'd just sold me my ticket. With a late night on my sole account, I offered to let him knock off early, as he'd clearly been preparing to do. <laughs> he charmingly refused the offer and gave me the utterly wonderful experience of enjoying the film all by myself. Oh. Howard's biopic... And with the emphasis on bio, was a rather straightforward and possibly even syrupy account of Pavarotti's life and work, but accented by some cracking in every sense home video footage of the great man exploring the Amazon, pondering his legacy and always exuding his colossal radiant charm. More to the point, as the good doctor is fond of noting, when a film finds its audience, it fulfills its purpose. Exactly. And wallowing in the unique tenor and the perfect setting, this private late-night screening gave me the rare treat of a private audience with Luciano wow. and the seclusion to enjoy a good cathartic sob as the final aria played out. On my way out through the foyer, I met my personal projectionist, who was called David, thanked him profusely and told him that he really needn't have stayed on just for me, but that I had appreciated the fact that he had more, that he had more than I could express. He gave me a big Sicilian hug and told me that he would prefer to screen a film for one person who was truly touched by it than for a hundred who were merely passing by. He wouldn't hear it, but I w he won't hear this, but I'd be very grateful if you could give a Que succedi. That is definitely wrong. I definitely que succedi. Should have checked that. The equivalent in these parts of what's up. Yeah, but if you're going to mess up it'll Sicilian. Be, it'll be succedi, one of its two, two Cs. Que succedi. Oh, cicceri. Que succedi. Che succedi. No. Well, no. Well, what's the, how's the first word spelled? C H E, as oh, in Che. Yes, I think. And then S U double C E D E. Succedi. Che succedi. Che succedi. I mean, I'm I'm just doing it. In, you know, that's fine. I'm imagining what Christopher Walken would do if he was saying it to Dennis Hopper it, before shooting him in the face. It's the Sicilian equivalent of a was up. Anyway, if you could say that to David and all his worldwide brothers and sisters in projectionist presbytery, especially those who are prepared to work another two hours on a Monday night to show a film to a solo pilgrim, well, it's nice to know that those experiences are still out there. It is, and once again, uh, congratulations to the projectionists for their art. David. I'm David, I'm doing the Projectionist Awards this year and I ha I was to ask you, would you like to do it with me? It's really soon. Yeah, well... It's in a Monday in a couple of weeks' time. You're not busy. It's after it's after dark. It's, a, it's always good to invite me to do something whilst a show is being I know, recorded. I know, but it's just so it everyone's heard it. Very so you've said fine. To, Great, cool. To back out of that. It's a couple of Mondays away. What's the... How much? Like one Monday away. How much? How much? How much beer? All the, all the revels you can eat. Oh, all the beer you can drink. Well, well, Norris is involved. Well, we're in then. <laughs> Definitely. Are there peanuts? There'll be there'll be peanuts. There'll be cashew nuts. There'll be macadamia nuts. Which film is that? Stop naming nuts. Say macadamia nuts. That would just drive her over. She'd say stop naming nuts. Nathaniel Marshall. Best in show. Well done. Is thirty Mostly. and a half. Carl and Ellie, I am an LTL and an STE, having first emailed you on the day of my graduation from Durham University in 2011. A very fine university. That day coincided with Mark's rant about Transformers 3. The reason for getting in touch after so long is because I have reached another major milestone in my life. At 2pm tomorrow, Saturday Nov 2, 
I should, as no one is calling I it. should be marrying my partner of 11 years wow. and best friend Katie Goodall in the Museum Gardens of York. He's marrying his partner and his best friend. Because it's going to be an overcrowded it's wedding. modern standards. <laughs> it's, it's, anything, it's, anything goes. It's amazing. Crazy. We first got together during our time at university and bonded over love of film. After our first date, we spent time discussing and debating the 100 greatest movie characters which had been compiled in a major film magazine and regular trips to the cinema soon began. Our first picture together was Up and cinema trips have continued ever since. We soon started a tradition of trying to watch every Best Picture Oscar-nominated film, still go to the cinema 25 to 30 times a year, with our most recent visit being Joker. Like Carl and Ellie from Up, we have grown up together through our adult life. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to... Now, this is this is the... thinking, fine, I'm on board with this. Yeah. They sound like our kind of people. Yes. And then, the kick in the ribs. Here we go. The smack in the head. Here we go. What is it? I'm, I'm bracing myself Unfortunately, now. I haven't been able to convert her to full-time member of the church. Really? Her listening has remained restricted to long car journeys or specific reviews on YouTube. Well, that's not... What's the point? Well, yeah, Despite thought... this major character flaw, I still love her more than ever. Can't wait to tie the knot tomorrow. It's not too late. Yeah. I call it off. You don't have to call it off. What you do is you have to... You have to it's... Put it on pause. Put it on... Have, you, have you ever seen Diner? Uh, is this D-I-N-E-R or D-I-N-A-H? No, D-I-N-E-R. Oh, OK. Well, As no. opposed to D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Um when what happens thing, in diner? There's the thing, in, in order to get married, one of the characters has to pass a pop music quiz from the person that you remember this. And it's and it's a lot of obscure things about naming the B-sides of 45s that he has, otherwise he, otherwise they can't carry on together because it, it means so much to him. Well, it, if this podcast means so much to Nathaniel Marshall, 30 and a half. So do, do you take... He's, he's spending his, the rest of his life with someone who's not really that bothered. No, no, but, OK, a, a simple tweak to the vows. Do you take so-and-so and their podcast? Uh, it might be too late for that. How, what, do, what, do they, what, do you, what does one say in the well, wedding? Well, no, so it's, it, it's in the Museum Gardens of York, so this is going to be... So it's a civil affair, so I don't know. It's really... Well, as opposed to an uncivil affair. Are you going to take Nathaniel to be your... You know, do you agree for Nathaniel to be your husband? Yes. And, and he's got to say, and then do you accept Katie as your wife? And presumably he'll say yes, but at that point... It somebody somebody says, point of order. Point of, point yeah, of order. Point of order. John Burkow comes in and goes, emergency point of order. You go, which attainment? Yes, the uh, yes, Wittertainment has it unlocked. <laughs> unlocked. <laughs> so Why do they do the that past. thing about? It's a, the emphasis two ways. The eyes have it. The eyes have it. It's the same words. That was a song, wasn't it? The eyes, eyes have, have it. it. Who did that? Good. Who Good. Did, who did that? Who it's did a that? pop quiz. It is in the middle, in of, the a middle of the thing. That's right. I haven't got access the to the eyes internet. have it. It was. Why haven't you got access to the? Have you not logged in? Have you forgotten your password again? No, no, no. I have, but I, I don't want to log on to my phone. Right. You? No, we've got your phone, but you've got a computer screen in front. Carol of Carol Fialka is exactly right. Carol Fialka is. No, I don't remember that. Yeah, we're gonna. We could have a little. I just bit. remember that's how the goes. The eyes have it, but it didn't go unlock. That's that's what it was missing. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see if we can we'll see if we can find it. anyway. Okay. Meantime, Nathaniel is still getting married to Katie, despite all the evidence that is sort of stacking up against this. Anyway, so... You know what? I think that what she's doing is she's just treating me and keeping keen. You know, she's just... She's not... You know, it's because 
Because then imagine when she says, and incidentally, I should tell you, I have been secretly listening to the podcast all this time. Well, if if she says that, then it's okay. Otherwise, I think there's trouble ahead. There may be trouble ahead. The invites to this to this wedding are traditional cinema tickets. The exit music is Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. It is and, not Indiana Jones. It's Indiana Jones. And most special, our first dance is going to be "Let's Go Fly a Kite" from Mary. Oh, Poppins. okay. Isn't fine. that good? Okay, I'm sorry. Well, in that case, it doesn't matter if she never listens to the radio. She is practically perfect in every way, and you have my permission to marry and live long and prosper with whoever you wish. With whoever, that's no, not with whoever you wish. With 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 his chosen partner. Her who's agreed partner. to have her chosen partner with yes. her chosen partner yes, who's Nathaniel. agreed to have that as the thing that is the thing anyway i should try and hold back the tears at that point which i find impossible when watching the film i am also trying to find a way to work hello to jason isaacs into my speech without katie despairing so soon into the marriage thank you both for being a source of inspiration for our ongoing cinema trips keeping our love of cinema alive for 11 years well yours nathaniel not hers and the hope of many more years to come and a was up to one of my groomsmen, Dan Whiteley, a convert to the church, will marry him, who will probably be classed as a medium-term listener. Well, OK, well, you know, obviously wish you all the best. So, hang on, who was that email from? Nathaniel Marshall, age 30 and a half, Fine. who's marrying Katie Goodall. Yes, but so, so, who so when, to when us. you were correcting me about her, but that's with Nathaniel, that's why I said his part, because the letter was from him. What? No, it doesn't matter. It's just grammatically you were catching me off guard and I was feeling all worried. No, everything is fine. Everything is all fine and their marriage will be perfect. But, if they're gonna but have I that am slightly first... worried about them. I'm not, not after the Get to Go Fly Kite. She can do whatever they, they, can, they can both do whatever they want if that's their first dance. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what the honest truth is? They can both do whatever they want regardless of what two old farts think about it. Will you speak for yourself? I'm still worried. I might have to turn up. I, I'm not doing anything tomorrow. I might turn up at the Museum <laughs> Gardens of York. Yeah. And alert security, oh, because hi. this is not entirely a hi. joke. It's very possible. That would be great, wouldn't it? Since he's not on top come? of the pops, why he you... needs to do... I could come. Why don't, why don't we both Where is it? it? It's in York. The Museum Gardens of York in York. You could, could come dre- Actually, you could come dressed as that guy who did Fear of God. Fear of God, yeah. From Depeche Mode. You know, do you know what I'm wearing? Come like That's the, the suit I got married in, but I don't fit into it anymore. I, would, I can't find that hard to believe. <laughs> it's true. No. And you'll come dressed as... Top of the Peter from Germany, 1989. Okay. <laughs> One of those. But things. if it's in the gardens, I'm sure we can. We can. Anyway, there's a wall we can scale. Enough of this. And there's a moment, isn't there, in the service when they say, "If anyone has any just cause or impediment," we As go a church wedding. They won't say that in the museum gardens of York. Is that does that not happen in? I civil? don't think. I don't think that's ha- happens in a. Civil I didn't get married in the church. I got married in a registry office. I'm sure there's a moment in which they asked whether anybody had any just cause or impediment why these two should not be joined together in holy man- matrimony. Holy matrimony. Holy matrimony. Marriage. Could just do that. That's all you want. Marriage. Peter Cook. Best vicar. Whichever wedding I've been, apparently, do have that. Which any wedding that I've ever been at, when they get to that moment. There is all what you. It's like, don't don't you feel a terrible urge to go? Yes, and then we go. What? No, sorry, just. Yeah, apparently. That, so that is in the civil ceremony. It's in the everything. Yeah, it's in. Everything. It's a legal thing, isn't it? If anybody knows any reason why they can't, it's not. It's not because I don't like him or whatever. At it's, that point, you put your hand up and say, "Wrong podcast choice." Serious questions about the way this is going. <laughs> And then, and Katie, then in the police, because I know this is going to be on the way you, home. Katie, then you have to say, "I realise the error of my ways. I have downloaded about ten years worth of podcasts." And and the officiating person goes, 
All right. All right. With, that's fine. On with the, the show. show. That's the way it goes. Good. Well, thank heavens that's sorted out. Thank heavens we don't have to go to York. I mean, I like York. That came out wrong. Let's go to York anyway. And as the vicar says, on with the show. Yeah. At the beginning of the programme, before we come in, right, before we actually start, um, the microphones are put on and we just do a little bit of uh, hello. Yeah, one, two, three. Yeah. And I usually say to Mark... Um, hello, hello. Hello, hello. And then you and I say, are you happy? And you say, I haven't been happy since Nixon re- re- retired. Yeah, resigned. Resigned. Didn't retire. Died. Resigned. Whatever. It was a whole scandal thing. Watergate. Yeah, or is that it? Yeah, it's a long time it was. ago. You remember that film, The Post? That one. Oh, OK, that. And then I, for reasons that cannot really be explained, but I was asked recently, I just say, hello, hello, who's your lady friend? And I, I've got no idea. I obviously heard someone say that many years ago, and so I just say that without thinking. Yeah. It's like a default setting. So just as we've just had a live broadcast, a sensational live outside broadcast, full of interesting stuff from BBC introducing. Yes. I thought we, we, we could tie this in. So, hello, hello, who's your lady friend? Turns out to be a hit for Harry Fragson. Him? I've, I've got all of his album. Yeah, that's right. So Harry Fragson. So this is a big hit from 1913. Is this, a, is, is this a medley of his hit? No, no. This, so this is when we were at Radio 1 in 1913. 13. Harry Fragson did this. Hello, hello. Who's your lady friend? The son by Fragson. She owned a mile in jail. Say, lady, man, with me. Every pretty girl he loves to school. Join in the back. wax cylinder, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's enough for Harry Frankson. He's got a big chorus coming up. Here we go. Hello. Hello. Who's your lady friend? <laughs> BBC introducing Harry Fragson from 1913. Top of the hit parade. Incidentally, I when I said in that film, the I, sh- I mean, the post ends with Watergate. I should really have said all the president's men, but I was just thinking of what was in that would memory. still be. I haven't done that as a double bill, but it would. It would because it literally runs into it. it first, first literally the program. Sorry, but it does because it ends with where where all the president's men begin. Uh, well, anyway, welcome to the programme. Here we are. Thank you. Uh, eight it was coming anyway. It's, it's oh, you mean good. the listeners? Yes, indeed. Eight minutes past three o'clock. I have to show up, otherwise they don't pay. Felicity Jones is going to be our special guest. When was the last time she was on? 3.30 for Rogue One. Okay. And uh, did, what? Did she, is that the only... Did, did she come on for that? There was a really, really nice, bittersweet... The Archers, she was in that? No, it wasn't the Archers. Oh, <laughs> That's okay. funny. Why anyway. haven't we been on the Archers yet? We, t- we There was a concerted campaign. I think I was a little bit rude about the Archers. Oh, were you? Yes, I think so. I can't. Ma- really? I think I said something like, I can't stand it, it's really, really boring, or something like that. Okay, which... I don't remember you saying that. I, I, that's, gosh. Yeah, I think we... <laughs> Okay, well, that would, be, a, that would be why the envelope never came then, wouldn't it? But I'm happy to, you know, ingratiate myself. Thanks for that. It's, it's an absolute great. Box office top ten. Stop up. you two inviting you to their gigs. Uh, coming up in just a moment. Tom Ibbotson, D. Phil, M. Fizz, Oxon. Dear Fundamental String and P-Brain. Um, which one do you want to be? <laughs> I'll be P-Brain if you be the Fundamental String. Okay. <laughs> 
It's P-brain. I think we've got some serious physics about to happen. OK. As a lapsed physicist, I like to keep abreast of the latest news in physics. Well, what do you do being a lapsed physicist? It's like you believed in physics, but then you forgot where you left your belief. You know? Yeah, that's right. I used to, it was everything was so certain, and then yes. I realised that one day I woke up and I, I dropped something and it fell upwards, and I thought, Ugh. I don't know where I am anymore. Anyway, not by reading technical papers, but by watching YouTube videos. A recent series of videos by Wired has an expert talk about a topic of their research at five levels of difficulty, starting by explaining to a child and working all the way, which is where we are, yeah. and working all the way up to talking to another expert in the field. When I saw a... You have to stay with me. Right? I am staying stay with, with you. me on this. When I, have I saw nowhere a, to go. When I saw a video about higher dimensions, my interest was piqued, and I proceeded to watch a theoretical physicist explain the concept of spatial dimensions beyond the usual three. Okay. Where the fourth dimension was not your chair moving underneath you like some high-tech cinemas would have you believe, to a child, teenager, college student, PhD student and finally an expert. I was about to switch off, as indeed you are, <laughs> as even though I have a D-fill in physics myself... The talk of anti-de-sitter spaces and P-brains was all getting a bit too much. When, to my surprise, yeah. out of nowhere, one of the experts uttered the immortal phrase... You know, we know it's that one... quantum, baby. <laughs> well, I immediately thought, that's a coincidence. I wonder if he's a member of the church. And no sooner as I had thought this, my suspicions were confirmed as he laughed and said... I, I stole that from Keanu Reeves, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone probably voted for you. <laughs> so I suggest that there must be an interdimensional connection, possibly via a higher dimensional vibrating membrane, between the church and the office of the eminent professor. Or perhaps he's just a fan. And we've checked him out. And he is a fan. He is a fan? He's, yes. When you say you checked him out, what did you do? Did you look him up? His name is Clifford V. Johnson. Uh -huh. theoretical physicist, professor at the University of Southern California and graphic novelist, and he was talking to theoretical physicist Sean Carroll on a video See, for theor Wired. Theoretical physicist always sounds to me like you're a physicist, but theoretically. Yeah. You know, actually, you're a milkman. And actually, and of course, all of that was inspired by this. It's quantum, baby. There you go. And it was all just a big, elaborate setup. And so that, that apparently could... is now a ringtone. It would be a good ringtone. No, I know somebody who has that as a ringtone. Um, who's this? This is true. Who's this? Who's your lady friend? Yeah, this is my lady's friend. Just been listening to this week's podcast in which Mark reminisced about off-licences to a clearly bewildered Dr S. <laughs> this brought back some memories for me because my parents used to run a pub in the 70s, which indeed had an off-licence. An off-sales, there we go. We always referred to it as the outdoor. Yes, and the yes, outdoor, that exactly so. This brought back some memories for me because my parents used to run a pub in the 70s. OK, I've done that. And yes, you could bring in your empty bottles, any type would do, and have them filled, filled with, the, with the ale of your choice. That's the one. My dad was a bit of a joker, not a film joker. <laughs> so when children came in... This is a hilarious sequence. Okay, go on. So when children came in asking for crisps, he would ask, large or small? Now, this might sound perfectly ordinary question, except that the fact that we didn't sell large packets, they hadn't really been invented. invented. So naturally, when the children asked for a small packet, my dad would place the packet of crisps on the counter and bash it with his fist. <laughs> How hilarious. The good old days when customer service wasn't a thing. Thank you, True. Before the box office top ten, this is one of the most... All right, it's not that funny. It's because it's, it's the crisps. The crisps are large or small. Small, please. 
Easily pleased. Have you been on the source? <laughs> this is one of those emails which sets this show apart. Coming up, you ready? Okay. Box office top ten in just a second. Collier in Coventry. Dear What's Going On and Nothing Much, I'm a university researcher and wanted to share an experience I had recently in northern Russia while working with a colleague who is one of the last ten, we think, people able to fluently speak her indigenous language, which is Ket, spelt K-E-T. Wow. And I looked this up. They are the only survivors of an ancient nomadic people believed to have lived in central and southern Siberia. OK? Wow. So th we're talking about really obscure stuff, yeah. really hardcore stuff. Yeah. Since my last visit, I had tracked down a set of texts recorded in Ket 60 years before in the very village from which she and her community had subsequently been forcibly relocated. Most often, these texts had been transcribed by student linguists following present protocols who had no close familiarity with the languages they were hearing. So, as Dr Zoya and I looked down at the handwritten notes, it was exciting to feel that we were accessing voices unheard in half a century. Moreover, the voices of people she had known as a child when the village was still a Ket-speaking community. OK. And you're probably thinking, where on earth is, <laughs> is this, this going? going? The first text had been recorded from a reindeer herder and a fisherman and was titled How to Build a Sledge. It says in the translation, I just build a sledge. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> Our influence is going back through time. <laughs> how do you build a sledge? I just build a sledge. You just build a sledge. This is how they were speaking in Ket, an almost obscure language, uncovered as a gem. Do they, they have? I don't like suppose they, that they put what the Ket original or like a phonetic version. No, if, I can't. If you if they're listening, please send us whatever the yeah. Ket version of "We just build a sledge" would be. Yeah, how do you build a sledge? You just, just build, build a sledge. sledge cause you I could would... send it in Ket. We, Mark and I will reenact it in a very moving sequence That's on right. next week's programme. Or later on, do it now. Depending on how fast it comes in. Yeah, mayo at bbc.co.uk if that's you, Collier, in Coventry. Box office top ten. At 18, Monos. I think Monos is really extraordinary. It's nominally a story about teenage gorillas um, living up in... Uh, in the mountains of an unspecified area where there is a war going on and they are they are on one part of it, although you're never really told what the political context is. It's a, a, It draws on Lord of the Flies and it draws on, to some extent, Heart of Darkness. It has brilliant performances. It has an extraordinary soundtrack by Mika Levy, which is one of the strangest things I've heard this year. It's brilliantly directed by Alejandro Landis. Um, and I think it's brilliantly indefinable. I talked about it for great length uh, last week, and at the end of it I said, I don't think anything of what I've said has described what the movie is like. Please go back and listen again to that review if you didn't hear it first time around, because otherwise I'll just spend another five minutes saying it's one of those films that you have to see to believe. Uh, we've been in encouraging lobby correspondents yes. to take part in this box office top ten. This is where you've seen a movie, you walk out of the movie at the end, you come out, you make sure that there are no other people around you who you're going to spoil it for, and then you record your thoughts and then you send it as a sound file to mayo at bbc.co.uk. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on Monos, here's Andrea in Edinburgh. Andrea here in Edinburgh. I just stepped out of the cabrio after watching Monos. I don't really know what to say. It's just unbelievable. Performances are unbelievable. The sound is unbelievable. Yeah. Just... 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There you are. You but there we go. But in a way, that's that's an oh, that's an almost perfect example of what I, what I was just saying. Great sound, great performances, and unbelievable because it's very hard to say anything that, more descriptive than that. Number ten. So that's Monarch, and that's yeah. an eighteen. So go see it before it sort of disappears. Well, it's a small, it's a smaller release, but I mean, it will be. I think it will be around for a while. Uh, Gemini Man is at ten. You know, Will Smith versus Will Smith. This is interesting partly because the facial replacement that they did on this was to do with creating a sort of synthespian character. And I've just today seen um, The Irishman, which I know you've seen as well, mm-hmm. in which it's not facial replacement, it's de-aging technology in, to make Robert De Niro and actually the other characters as well look younger during the course of the drama. In the case of this, they've gone back to early Will Smith performances, I think from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and used them to create a whole new face that is then manipulated by him the only question is why, because it doesn't really add up to very much and it reminds us that I want Ang Lee to be making emotionally engaging dramas rather than messing around with the technology. Yeah, uh, last week uh, we were talking about 120 frame, uh, frames per second. Yes. And uh, anyway, I, it, it's quite technical. But anyway, an email from Kay Hoddy. Okay. Who, uh, and she says, as someone who worked on the film in post-production, mm-hmm. I can promise you it was filmed at 120 frame, frames per second for each eye. So it's 240 frames. Kay has worked wow. in no, visual I, well, effects. I, I stand corrected. Mortal Engines, Avengers Endgame, amongst many others, including Gemini Man, and she worked on it, so it's 120 frames well, that, I mean, that's, for that, each eye. What, and why does that matter? Well, because, OK, the faster... If you remember, there was the email last week from somebody talking about computer games and a high refresh rate means yes, that you right. see the... The, the 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 faster the screen is refreshing, the clearer, the more immediate the picture should appear. And that's why when you see 120 frame, which I thought was 60-60, but if it's 120 each eye, it's even more, it gives you the impression that you're looking at something that is right, tangibly right there in front of you, which I don't find very cinematic. But the technology involved in it is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, so, Kay Hoddy, thank you very much for the email. Uh, Gemini Man's at 10. Is it Big Ill at 9? Yeah, no, I haven't seen this because I don't believe that it was press screened. Um, do you have any emails I about it? I do not it? have any. OK, so if anybody's seen that, please let us know. Also, same case with Countdown, which is a uh, horror thriller. Again, happy to get your emails about them. What? Really? So there's a well, yeah, horror because- thriller and they didn't show it you? It, it wasn't national press screen. I don't know that there weren't any press screens. But if you remember last week, there was something like 15 films out. Is Countdown anything? Is it like the, it's the, the movie it's version of the TV show? The TV show. That's exactly what it is, Simon. That'd be really funny. Wouldn't it? Just before the denouement, if that ticking clock turned up. <laughs> anyway, Zombieland Double Tap is at number seven. Not entirely sure why we finally got a sequel to something that I, I, think, every, I think everything that Zombieland was going to do had been done in the first part, and I think it's a real shame that the best gag in the film was spoiled in the trailer. But, there, you know, it's kind of OK. Passes the time. Alex from East London just got out of a screening of Zombieland Double Tap. Unlike Mark, I'm a huge fan of the original, so it was with a bit of excitement and a lot of trepidation that I went to see this much-delayed sequel. I wasn't let down, but my expectations were not surpassed. It's not an enjoyable film. Oh, and I did enjoy the company of these characters again. Oh, OK, I'll do that sentence again. Yes, go on. Given that I completely misread it. You did. It's an enjoyable film. (laughs) And I did enjoy the company of these characters. Again, some jokes and set pieces work, but the hit count is definitely lower than its predecessor. On the sliding scale of belated sequels, if Blade Runner 2049 is the high point and Dumb and Dumber 2 the low, then this sits comfortably in the middle. Fun but flawed. Okay, fun but flawed is fine. Uh, so that's Zombieland at seven. Abominable is at six. Some interesting, um, delightful sights, such as a 
a huge statue coming to life when somebody plays a magical violin, a field of flowers turning into a sort of seascape, but I don't think it's particularly memorable. And it did remind me how much how much we've got used to animation being really extraordinary nowadays. Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, is at number five. Absolutely memorable, absolutely extraordinary. Just smiled all the way through. This is what, you know, this is the kind of thing that we've come to expect nowadays from... I mean, it's, it's a film for all the family. It is laugh-out-loud funny, and you gave me a hard time about saying that last week, but I will say because I did laugh out loud. It's beautifully animated. The slapstick comedy in it is hilarious. There are no words. It's all just sounds and sound effects, and that will incidentally play into something that we're going to review later on called Making Waves, about the art of, of cinema sound. But I, I just loved Shaun the Sheep. I grinned and laughed all the way through it, and particularly in the current climate, we need that kind of pick me up uh, Sam Weber in Norwich says dear film boys relatively new member of the church my partner's been listening for years and I finally got round to joining in over the past few months saw Farmageddon last week fully agree with everything Mark has said funny delightful confirms to me why I'm a lifelong Ardman fan that said Ardman has a lot of questions to answer about the wider Shaun the Sheep Wallace and Gromit universe okay a lot of questions. Sam is taking this very seriously. Sean was first introduced in the 1995 short A Close Shave. That's right. Before getting his own TV show and eventual movie with 2015's fantastic Sean the Sheep movie. Mm-hmm. In said film, Sean is depicted as having grown up with the farmer from a lamb, meaning he must have been born on the farm and had at least a year to grow up before being stolen by Wendelin Ramsbottom in A Close Shave. <laughs> Doing the maths, he must be at least 21. <laughs> as of his first movie, a minimum 25 years old by Farmageddon. The average sheep leaves, lives for 10 to 12 years. So Sean and the rest of his ageing herd must be something very special. Yeah. Can I, can, I, can I explain that? Yes, go on. It's a movie. Oh, yeah. It's a cartoon, isn't it? It's, it's a cartoon. And They're made of plasticine. They don't age. Dear Sean the Sheep and Sean a Problem, last Sunday my, my wife Laura, says Tom Penge, uh, took our two-year-old daughter Elsie to see Sean the Sheep farm again. Okay. Although she'd been to the cinema before to parent and baby screenings of Black Panther and Rampage, I don't think she fully engaged with those, being more interested in sleeping and pooping than watching <laughs> Dwayne Johnson high-fiving a gorilla. She was only a few months old. However, now at the grand old age of 26 months and already a huge fan of Shaun the Sheep, Good. since being administered heavy doses of the ovine opioid during a particularly arduous long-haul flight, we decided Farmageddon would be the perfect choice for our first proper big girl cinema outing. Please tell me this has a happy ending. I don't think we could have picked a better film. Great. To say it was an unmitigated triumph would be an understatement. Sat between her mum and dad, bum firmly glued to booster seat, hand rarely straying more than an inch from the popcorn, which she insisted were Rice Krispies, she was enraptured throughout, laughing at the many, many hilarious set pieces... Uh, especially that thing, yeah. Anyway, before mm-hmm. last Sunday, I always struggled to identify my bestest Ev's cinematic experience. Gravity at the IMAX, Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Empire in Leicester Square, Corpse Grinders at the NFT, only joking, Mark. <laughs> well, Farmageddon at the Beckenham Odeon is now the clear frontrunner because I will so. never forget the look of joy on my daughter's face as she soaked in the woolly mayhem and perfect wordless narrative that unfolded in front of her eyes. It really is a bleat for all the family. That's fantastic. Love the show, Steve. Very good. Thank Very you, good. Tom in Penge, 325. Uh, the Adams family's at four. Which I can't review because, if, as you remember, this time last week you got a text which said, Simon, I have a choice. There's a screening clash. I'm either going to see Adams family or I'm going to see the Bruce Springsteen thing. Yes, that's and right. And I won't see the Bruce Springsteen thing. So, 
Excellent. Well, I think you made the right choice. Thank you. Um, Sarah Martin, I enjoyed Adam's family and the other adult and both children did as well. The younger ones with no history of it and ourselves long-time fans, it passed the Six Love Test easily, was well-pitched to be neither too scary nor too saccharine. Uh, Adam's family at four, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, is it three? Mm, the way you said that title made it sound so much better than the film, as indeed did the interview with uh, Angelina Jolie, because somewhere in the background of all this is an interesting idea, but it's none of it's on the screen. It just felt terribly mechanical, and it's like it's a film which actually begins, which saying... You know all the stuff that happened before? Well, don't worry about that. Anyway, she's evil again. Although she isn't evil. Helen from Bedford. On Friday, I took my seven-year-old daughter, Winnie, to our local view in Bedford to see Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Okay, I like the way you say that. On the way out, I asked what she thought of the film. She said, why? Do you want to email your men? It turns out (laughs) that without realising it, every time we watch a film, I ask her to review it and tell her that I will email her review to Mark and Simon, which she now refers to as my men. So this time I have. Here's Winnie's review of Maleficent. Okay, cool. I'd give it nine out of ten. I'm deducting a mark because it was too scary in the battle bit. A lot of things died, and that's a bit much when you're only seven. Also, Maleficent wasn't in it that much, and she's my favourite. Also, she looked weird when you could see her long hair. I thought it was quite funny, and I liked all the flowers. As we passed the poster of the film in the lobby, she added, Why was it called Mistress of Evil? She's not Not evil evil at all. That doesn't make sense. And there you have it, says Helen. Title doesn't make sense. Not enough Maleficent. Quite funny. Bit scary and nice flowers. Keep up the good work, my men. That is a better and more thorough review than I could ever hope to give it, and I am grateful for it. On that subject still, Petra in Coventry. Uh, I want to put a word in for Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, and the rather sniffy comments from Mark. For for those listening, not watching the live stream... He pointed at me. In case anyone is not sure which one you are. Okay. I went to see this with a bunch of friends, male and female. As with the first film, there is something about this film that seems to appeal to us women, perhaps more than the largely male critics who were so lukewarm about it. Similarly, the ladies in our group all loved it, while the men were more mixed in their appreciation. The fact is, a film that is so much about mothers and daughters and women taking charge of their lives is still an all-too-rare thing. It is. While there are male characters... They are very peripheral to the lead trio of ladies. This is not to say any film with women in the lead is automatically of note, but me and my female friends were genuinely touched by the bond between Maleficent and Aurora. Love the dastardly deeds of the scheming Michelle Pfeiffer. The only thing I can say in response to that is that I evidently cannot argue that I am a 50-year-old bloke and therefore that that will, no, no matter how much I might pretend that it doesn't, will affect my review of the film. I still think that the film itself isn't very good, but I completely accept your argument that that may be because of part of the demographic... It may be because of the demographic of which I am part. Uh, nicely Thank you. constructed. Nicely constructed. I noticed that. Number two is Terminator Dark Fate. We have a lobby correspondent on this, who's Richard Beard. We've had Terminator T2, and this is Terminator Me Too, and all the better for it. All the things you'd expect, killer robots, great CGI, well-planned action pieces. The script is very on the nose at times, but it's well worth seeing on the big screen. Yeah, next, a little bit further back from the microphone, I'd say. You're blasting just a little bit, so, but anyway, thank you very much. And good to start with a kind of sharp, you know, we've had Terminator T2, now we've got Terminator Me Too. That's very good. I feel less enamoured of the film. I think that it is the best Terminator sequel since T2, but that isn't saying much. 
I think that narratively it is all over the place and it did feel like the franchise, the, as I said, the same for me with with Aliens, that the franchise, was it was astonishing that it produced a sequel that was as good as it did, but it should have stopped there. I mean, you know, I have such affection for uh, for the character of Sarah Connor because that was such a big deal. I mean, same with Ripley, um, that I really wanted to like it, but I really came out thinking, well, it just felt terribly mechanical. Plus, an awful lot of me was thinking, OK, so it's liquid metal, and how does that work? And as I said before, whereas before it was all wow, now it's just why? And that is a problem because it means that the film it wasn't engaging me emotionally and just felt like it was part of the kind of of a production line i mean the best of the production line after t2 but that's only because rise of the machine salivation genesis were just terrible tom harrison the first act in mexico city was outstanding first fast-paced action and tension great performances from the three new characters and stripped back fast lean car chase set pieces linda hamilton stole the show her grizzled world-weary performance was the heart of the film reminded me of hugh jackman in logan up until the mexico u.s border scene this film seemed unstoppable and i thought it might even be a match for t2 then they shoehorned in arnie's curtainator with a conscience i actually liked his character his performance was charming and funny but it was completely at odds with the tone of the first half of the movie from this point on the action scenes became increasingly overblown and incredible and the actors performances uh, got lost amongst the mucky murky cgi heavy chaos and destruction i enjoyed the film easily the third best terminator but wish they'd had the courage to stick with the stripped back gritty tone of the first half i mean i have to say this i i didn't think linda hamilton was great and it's not because i don't think she's great i think that the script is very difficult to deliver with anything other than a kind of caricature and you know I, for me it's it's not a very well written film and that doesn't serve the actor plus all of arnie's gags particularly the gag about i'm very funny seem to have been written on a fourth pass at which point somebody decided that they should do the zingers which they'd left out by mistake uh, joker is number one you know, you've been to see it since we I last have, spoke. I, I have been to see so it. So tell me, because I'm, I, I, we, we haven't discussed what you no, thought I, of it. I th- it's obviously a terrific performance. Joaquin Phoenix, quite extraordinary. I still, I still wonder what Heath Ledger would have done if he'd still, if he'd been given that role. But he is, but it is a startling performance, and the bathroom scene is everything people said it would be. Dancing, yeah. I just, I know, just to make a small point, and yeah. I know we have mentioned this. No, go ahead. I do think it was a mistake to include the music of Rock and Roll Part Two when he's coming down the stairs, and sort of becoming the Joker character, because it took me out of the film, and instantly, instead of just going with the character, I was thinking, this wasn't wise to put. You know, the soundtrack is so brilliant. You could have done something else. You could have found something else to put in at that point. But, you know, but it's just a small point and it's gone in 30 seconds. But I do think it's just worth. No, no, sure. I mean, it's, did, did you did you end up overall liking it or did you find because when, when I was reviewing it, as I said that I think there's there is much to like and admire, but it is also a very, very kind of toxic feeling film, which is, you know, riddled yeah. with a very, uh, a very bleak worldview. And I, a very, and I, incredibly bleak. And I said, you know, when people say, I can't believe that the guy who made The Hangover made that film. Well, I kind of can, because the thing is, in The, the Hangover is the same. It's all about horrible people, <laughs> but The Hangover is meant to be funny and Joker isn't meant to be funny. I did, I did think that's it. I don't want to see, I don't want to see Joaquin Phoenix do this again. 
Okay. Well, I don't think. I think it is a stand. I mean, yeah, I know that it should be inevitably the fact that it's been as successful as it has means that, that you know I suppose that the pressure is on. But I mean, I, you're right. I think it is a standalone picture that shouldn't be. And I didn't end up comparing it to Heath Ledger. I thought it was completely in in and of its own world. Yeah. No, I just wanted. I just. It was just that moment. You know, you just think. That performance was so good, I wonder what he would have done with it. Anyway. Okay. Next, it's Felicity Jones, who plays daredevil pilot Amelia Wren in new film The Aeronauts, and we're going to hear from her after this clip. Today, myself, Amelia Wren, my naughty scientist, Mr Glacier, and my wonder dog, Posey, are going to change the world. Are you ready for us to do so? This balloon on which I stand, the mammoth, is a balloon like no other and will allow us to ascend higher into the air than any man or woman has ever gone. The French rose to 23,000 feet today we will break that record and reclaim it for these fair shores. And that's a clip from The Aeronauts. I'm delighted to say being joined by one of its stars, Felicity Jones. Hello, Felicity. Hello, Simon. How are you? Very well, thanks. It's been a while since Rogue One. It has, yeah. What have you been up to? Too many years. <laughs> I know. Too long. It is too long. Anyway, so The Aeronauts, what an, what an interesting story. So it's you and Eddie Redmayne in a balloon. I was... Intrigued and fascinated by this story, tell us about where we are. So, eighteen London, 1862. Take you tell us the story. Yes, the aeronauts. It's uh, it's about two uh, two people, one a scientist and one an aeronaut, who go up in a balloon and go on an adventure. And it's a story as to whether they will survive. And it's full of spectacle. Yeah, it's a it's a story of uh, of, of trying to beat the elements. And also, there are some psychological demons going on at the same time. There are. So you are Amelia Wren, and the other guy is Eddie Redmayne, and he's the scientist guy. So yes. tell us, and his character is based on a real character, and you're a composite. And tell us about Amelia and who and who she is and where she fits into the story. Yes, uh, Amelia Amelia Wren is um, one of the people she is um, most inspired by is a woman called Sophie Blanchard, who was a, a French aeronaut who was a real uh, wildcat. And she was actually a woman in the 18th century. And she used to fly solo uh, very late at night. And um, her penchant was uh, setting off fireworks from the balloon. Of course, why not? Uh, exactly, as, as you do. And, um, and actually, Napoleon was so obsessed with ballooning in this, in this period that he thought that he could invade England via the um, gas air balloon with Sophie Blanchard leading the charge so she is a huge resource for Amelia Wren so 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 Amelia is inspired by that kind of uh, that kind of character and when we when we meet you right at the very beginning um uh, Eddie is being the kind of oh he's just into science and all that kind of stuff and meteorology and uh, and so on and you are the kind of 
crazy cat, aren't you? You know, you're the one who's doing cartwheels and showing off to the crowd. Yes, she's very much, she's, she's, uh, Amelia has worked out that in order to make a living, she has to make the taking off of the balloon into a bit of a spectacle and a bit of an event so that then she can sell tickets um, and she'll draw the crowds. And so part of her way of doing this is to put on a bit of a show. So in the opening scene in the film, um, Amelia's entry is one where she comes via um, a few cartwheels um, yes. to get to the stage. She's quite brash as opposed to Eddie's sort of button-down Yeah, they're, they're, the, the drama is in their opposition and, and she tends to be very instinctive. She's very impulsive. She doesn't like to think about things too much and he's very much more uh, meticulous and, and fact-obsessed and, and what you see is, is the clash of these personalities. Mm. And it is, it is very much a film... And a story that takes place in the basket, and it's and it's you and him. It's it's a two hander. I mean, it's that is the film. Yes, it's the two of us in a very small space for for a long period of time. And actually, what happened is is when we were playing these parts, is that side of our personality would get amped up. So we would often have these disagreements, which would be slightly Eddie and Felicity, but also slightly Amelia and James. What does where, that mean? What's an Eddie and Felicity well, well, when Well, because we were playing these parts and they're such opposites, you know, that side of your personality where, where Eddie would say, please, let's do another take. And then which would be the James side, you know, of wanting to get it exactly right and perfect. And then the Amelia side of me would be, no, let's do it. We've got it. You know, we have to be, move on to the next and be a little bit more impulsive. And so it was fascinating to see that that blend of us as Eddie and Felicity, but also the characters that we were playing. Yeah, does it, and presumably helped enormously given that you are spending such a lot of time together in such a small space, is the fact that you have history, the fact you've been in theory of everything together just a few years ago. So when, when the idea came and when it landed on your desk, you might, obviously your first question was, who's the other guy? Yeah, exactly. And, and also the challenge of making it interesting. Because a lot of the time you, you cut back to their scenes and it is, as you say, it's just two of them sitting in a basket. And, and, and so how do we keep that interesting? How do we keep that engaging? And, and I think knowing that you're making it with someone where you have that level of trust that we'd established in theory of everything, it meant that we could, we could really push it. We could take risks. We could improvise. You, you feel very, very, very safe to, um, to, to pivot from that, from that relationship. Yeah. Well, how much did you know of 19th century ballooning? Well, interestingly, the film is sort of um, a, a top hits compilation of um, the best bits of ballooning history. So, uh, <laughs> is it? I didn't, yeah. I didn't know there was such a thing. I know. Who now knew? that's what I call ballooning. <laughs> exactly. It should be like an album now ballooning. Yes. So, so, so it consists of a whole number of great little stories all of which have happened in balloons exactly at different times throughout history so so the um the, the story of of obviously the climb that comes from that that amelia does at the end of the film that comes from a, a period of history with glacier in this chap um henry coxon the fact that um Uh, Amelia's husband dies that comes from Sophie Blanchard whose own husband had died um, so 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 the idea was a sort of amalgamation of of, of ballooning mm. events and you've alluded to the end which we shouldn't dwell on except to say that the I thought the film gets increasingly unpredictable and increasingly extraordinary mm. and as the fill as the balloon climbs to seven miles as I understand it, 37,000 feet, that general sense of this is astonishing 
increases with every minute so that by the time we get to the last 20 minutes we don't know what's going to happen. Oh, good. Yeah, you're strapped in. It's a bit like a roller coaster ride. I mean, ideally, by the end, you should you should really be on the edge of your seat. And and actually, that's what we we wanted. Is it, it is a it is a, a period film. You know, it is it is a costume drama. But by the end, you should feel it could be anywhere. Yes. You know, it's a story that's really um, distilled, and it's a story of survival of these two two individuals. And it, although that is the way it's being sold, it feels to me like it's your picture. You know, you, you Ed, Eddie is Eddie's always watchable and and great fun. But you're the star. You, you know, and the stuff that I know. Again, I don't want to talk too much about it. But what you get up to to save the balloon in the end, I've never seen in a film ever. Yeah, she's rather busy. I know. Lucky Eddie, he gets to lie in the basket for How how dangerous was it? Uh, it, uh, it was one of the most grueling experiences of my life. It was physically incredibly challenging. Um, In what way? We wanted to get something that felt very, very naturalistic. There's a sequence where I'm swinging myself into the, into the basket. She's fallen off the balloon and she wakes up and she's just on the single rope. And there's a way of doing that where you can have an help doing it. You know, you can have someone help swing you in. And we tried that a couple of takes and it just looked so, so phony and rubbish that we then thought, no, let what what happens if I try and do it myself? You know, what actually happens when a human being is in that situation? So it was things like that. So I was physically trying to push myself from stationary into that basket um, over and over again for, for, you know, for each take that we were doing and, and all the different shots, wide shot and close up. And so getting that level of you putting yourself through it physically is, I think, what really, what really sells the action. But you're definitely in a balloon and you are flying with Eddie Redmayne and you you def- and as I understand it, you did crash once. We did, yeah. We crashed on, um, it was actually the first time, the first day that we went up. Um, and we were doing this wide shot of the balloon. Um, with a he- with on the a he- first day, right. with, with, Exactly, with a helicopter spinning around us. And then the helicopter got the shot sped off. Um, and then we ended up, um, the, the pilot was worried we were going to hit some trees. So we threw out all the, the balloon is powered by sand. Um, so we threw out the sand, which is the ballast that then made us shoot up. And then the pilot turned around and said, oh, it looks like we've thrown out too much sand. At which point we're sort of looking back at him rather sort of pale faced going, what do we do now? Um, and then suddenly the, the, the trees we'd hoped to avoid were upon us and we were skidding through them and then um, grabbing each other's hands and, and crash landing. And yeah, So you actually crashed one. on the first day? Yes. Insurance must have been a very I interesting uh, account. Uh, again, I think I've got the timing right. All of this time that you're filming this you're planning your wedding yes so I was doing a very odd sort of dance between um, rehearsing stunt sequences and doing various sort of acrobatics and then going for dress fittings in between so it was a bit of a sort of schizophrenic period yes I would have think that that would be quite <laughs> memorable but did, were either of you injured uh, yeah, we did actually. We 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 accumulated a few war wounds throughout the experience. Um, so um, poor Eddie ended up twisting his ankle, stepping off set, and then I had a rib injury um, from falling into the basket repeatedly. And we were both covered in rather glorious purple bruises. Were you still bruised on your wedding day? There were a few. There were a few that had to be that had to be covered up. <laughs> but there's nothing like 
learning how to be an acrobat for preparing you for a wedding day. Um, can you explain your lack of gloves? She does have gloves and she throws oh. them out. Oh, okay. Because both of you, I mean, he particularly <laughs> seems ridiculously underdressed. I know. I know. She does have her gloves, but what happens, and I actually can't remember if this is in the final cut, Okay. but <laughs> what, what what happens originally is she takes the gloves off to cut. She has to um, cut the rope at the beginning when they're in the storm and she to, to let the sand go because she thinks, you know, we've got to fly above the mm. storm to get out of it. So then because the um, her hands are so slippery, she takes off the gloves and she cuts the ballast. Did it put you off ballooning? I'm never going in a balloon ever again, ever. I used to not be scared of heights and now from making this film, I'm petrified. But you're Amelia Wren, <laughs> fearless aeronaut, but you're not going to go on the screen. Again. But, um, you're definitely intellectual equals in this film, which... I imagine must have been one of the reasons that you did it and also enormously liberating. He's got his agenda. He wants to study the Earth's natural patterns. But you're a scientist as well. You're not there as ballast. It's your picture and you are considered equal all the way through the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think we both felt coming back and working together the only way it would work is that we both fell in love with those parts and and it had to be something very different from theory of everything and they had to be equals I mean that's what so much of the story is about is about how these two people are so evenly matched um, and they help each other through it you know they they need each other but they are as you say they're absolutely on a par with each other. Mm. And it feels, again, I think one of the strengths of the film is that it feels as though it's almost in real time. I didn't do the stopwatch, but it feels as though we take off and then we're with you all the way through the ascent and then the incredible uh, sequences that come after that. Again, not wanting to say too much, but it feels as though like we're in the balloon with you. Absolutely. Tom Harper, the director, will be very pleased that you've said that because he's very proud that it is pretty much real time of the trip as you're watching it. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to want to go in a balloon either. Having seen having it. seen the film, it kind of puts you off. I think I think it definitely does. What do uh, what do we see you in next, Felicity? What's uh, what's up next? I have a film that I'm about to be doing uh, with George Clooney that I'm very excited about. That I start shooting in January called Good Morning Midnight. And anything you can tell us about that? No, my lips are sealed. Okay, top secret. Uh, Felicity, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much, indeed. Thank you very much. Felicity Jones, I sort of gave in a bit feebly there at the end. He said, no, I can't tell you anything about it. There should have been at least a comeback and sort of got some kind of juicy tidbit out of it. But anyway. I thought you could say, she said, my lips are sealed. She said, she said like the vent at the top of the balloon. During very one good. Of the, very good. But I you, didn't you, want to give too much away. No, well, that's not giving too much away. Anyways, Felicity Jones talked about a new movie, The Aeronaut, starring uh, her and Eddie Redmayne. Her and him, yeah. Five minutes to four. Mark, take it away. Well, it's interesting because, um, I mean, I really like Wild Rose, which is the film that the director made previously, which is a great character study of uh, a Glaswegian uh, country singer with dreams of going to Nashville. And for an awful lot of this film, as you said, it's basically two people in a basket. It is two people in a balloon. You said beforehand, that's that's the plot. Mm-hmm. The two of them are in a basket together. There's some theatrics at the beginning when the, we, we see the different sides of their character. He's very, very tight-lipped and very scientific. She carnival, you know, cartwheels her way into the that balloon. The that we heard, yes. Yeah, and right that... Over the top. But the thing, when then she, she, she's got a little dog with her and, it's, and so that... 
that establishes the thing. So the rest of the time, they're going to be for, as you say, almost in real time, they're going to be together in this basket and how are they going to get on? So I came into it thinking that that was, because I hadn't seen any trailers or anything, thinking that that was essentially the, the core of it. What I didn't realise was, as she said, it's that mix of fact and fiction, but also of spectacle. And there is suddenly this vertiginous spectacle of, yes, they're in a balloon that's going up, and as it goes up, it will go through storms, and it will go through clouds, and it will go through wind, and it will go through freezing conditions. And during the course of this balloon ride, thanks to the inventiveness of the screenplay by Jack Thorne, it essentially takes a series of events that have all probably individually happened at various times over you know, many years, if not decades, if not centuries, to people in balloons and thrown them all together to this one balloon ride, which probably, you know, for however long it is, you know, an hour and a half. So it is spectacularly action-packed. And I have a real fear of heights. And there was, and it's a tribute to the film and how well it pulls off its spectacle, that there were entire sequences of it that I felt exactly like watching the Robert Zemeckis version of Man and White, The Walk, in which, you know, we actually see a version of him stepping out onto the wire between the twin, the, between the, the, the twin towers. So there are large sections, which Felicity Jones was describing there, that involve each one of them variously hanging out of the basket and doing other stuff because of stuff that has to be done to the balloon, which is going up and then coming back down again, but not always at the right time in the right way. And from a pure kind of edge-of-your-seat spectacle, I, I, my breath was taken away. In terms of the characters, there is a strange tension between the fact that he is essentially a historical character and she is inspired by specifically one, but a number of historical characters from a different period. And they've concocted a drama which puts the two of them together in the basket in order to make what, you know, in real life was a very, very different experience. You know, obviously they, they weren't in the basket together. It was a completely different. So the fact of the balloon actually going up and coming and, in, you know, going up so high that people started to pass out, all that stuff is true. But there is a whole kind of confection all drawn from reality and to be honest with you, really not scared of pushing the boundaries of how far can we push. So in the course of one balloon ride, a quite astonishing amount of stuff happens. But it's fine because firstly, you like both of them. I mean, he's very sort of uptight and tight-lipped and she is this sort of kind of fairground convention at the beginning. But then at the minute the balloon takes off, she's in control because she's the person who actually understands how the balloon works. And as you said in that interview, it's not just that she's his intellectual equal. She is in terms of being the... There's a couple of things that I worried about, like as stuff gets thrown out of the balloon, all I can ever think of is, where's that landing? I mean, you know, suddenly just just throw that bit over. Where's that going down? And then there were sections that I thought that can't be possible. But I've subsequently found out that not in that balloon ride, but in other balloon rides, people have actually performed quite extraordinary feats of climbing. So I enjoyed it. It, it. it scared me. I found I felt very, very vertiginous. I thought that it was a confection in terms of the liberties that it was willing to take with two people in a basket for a small period of time. But I kind of forgave it because I enjoyed it. Was it a problem, the fact that it's Felicity's picture, but that she was the, you know, but the, the true character was the one still in the basket? It wasn't a problem. And it isn't because I think she, she, breathes enough life into that composite character that oddly enough you believe in that composite character as a real as a real thing the film is the aeronauts uh and uh, it's out today 
Hello, good afternoon. If you just joined us, you missed Felicity Jones talking about uh, aeronaut. And, and, and while, yes, and while we're saying hello, let, let's say hello and welcome to new listeners. New listeners everywhere. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you're very welcome. We'd like to make you feel very welcome. Apparently there have been some. And that's a very good thing. It's a very I always good assume thing. there are lots of people. And by the way, on, on that little thing about uh, Brexit, and if you miss any Brexit, the Five Live will keep you informed. If you do miss some, there's always the Brexit cast podcast, which is still fantastic and sort of coming into its own yes. now. Um, and I've been, I've been racking my brains trying to think of a way of crowbarring us. Onto the Brexit cast. Onto the Brexit cast, because... It, I just know it would be a good thing. Yeah. But I can't think of a single reason why they would invite us on. OK, shall we do this? Dear Brexit cast, we know that sometimes you listen. Can we be on? Can we? Yes. And we'll, we'll think I of something. I wrote an essay once for a book about film in Europe. I have done... I did a five live outside broadcast from the European Parliament. And Simon used to dress up as a fictional character called Peter from Germany. I think our Euro credentials are on the table. I think that's right. I interviewed Chris Patton. All those... I mean, this We're is, available. This is perfect. Yeah. Come on. I mean, it's not as like there's anything else happening in the next few weeks. What else are you going to fill your show with? Exactly. Just the usual nonsense. I want to like be on, we do. I want to be on Fortunately as well. But at the moment, let's just, let's just do the Brexit. Yeah, let's just... Go, what, let's, let's just one Let's time. conquer the world. Since you destroyed the possibility of us ever being on the Archers. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's just yeah. that when the Archers comes on, I have to leave the room. Okay. Is that because your family tell you you have to leave the room or because you have to leave the room? Trying to be crazy. Okay. Anyway, uh, before we finish on Aeronauts, Gavin in West London, much like the film The Walk, directed by Robert Zemeckis, which which I mentioned, mentioned, the chief value of the Aeronauts essentially comes down to the big screen spectacle of watching individuals balance precariously hundreds of feet above the ground. Its multiple action sequences don't disappoint, and Felicity and Eddie give it plenty of welly, quite literally, at one dramatic (laughs) point. But virtually everything else seems a little too contrived, stilted and overwritten. P.S. No one thought to pack up woolly hat and some mittens. Well, the woolly hat and mittens thing has been... I think we did answer that. She had mittens and she chucked them Yes, they are one of the things that I thought, who's that landing on? And then there were some heavier objects well, as well. Yeah, geez, I, I wouldn't mind a mitten landing on me, but I would a bag of sand. A sextant. You wouldn't want that landing I on you. I would not like one of the sextants, no, because it's got a pointy bit. Also worth saying that I believe that there is an IMAX... Ver- See, I saw the film on a fairly small screen, and I was pretty... You know, it really it gave me the fears... Because I'm, as I said, I'm, te- I am really scared of heights, and like there was an entire sections of the film that I virtually watched from, you know, hiding behind my hands. But I love that. Certainly, I, I, one of the things I love about cinema is its ability to do that, to thrill you in ways that you that would never get to happen in real life. Incidentally, I have been up in a hot air balloon. Have you? Yeah, it was a birthday treat. Was it a treat? Well, yes, it was. It, 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 once you're up, when you, as you go up, it's terrifying. Once you're up to a certain height, it's fine. And then, of course, you just go along at that certain height. And what's really weird is because it's silent, you can hear people talking on the ground, even if you're however many... Which is one of the things that they actually... Yeah, it's very well really bizarre because it doesn't make any noise. Can I just say, we just... I mentioned this to you as an off-air thing, but yeah. actually it's worth it as an on-air thing, particularly as you mentioned Jack Thorne, who wrote the screenplay for Aeronauts. Yes. And at the beginning of the show, I was talking about how excited I was about his dark materials. Yeah. And he wrote that. And there's a drama series on Channel 4 called The Accident, and Jack wrote that. I mean, it's like 
No, no, it's just he's written everything. You feel like going, there are other people. Would you mind? Yeah, it's like taking work for everybody else. <laughs> anyway, what a smart guy he is. Richard in Sheffield, before we continue. I write to you regarding a recent code of conduct experience that I wanted to make you aware of. On holiday this week in London, I decided to take in a late morning showing of Monos at the local picture house. Isn't that a great thing to go to, you know... One of the one of the greatest. But also to go to a late morning show. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. It's lovely. And the late morning shows are the best because they're usually half empty, which is I brilliant. I purchased my ticket, gave it to the staff member at the screen door. He looked at me and smiled and said, Where is your baby? I frowned, puzzled, and he repeated the question... Where is your baby? I laughed along, presuming he'd got me confused with a new local father doppelganger. As I entered the screening, I realised my error. The seats were full of 30-odd babies and parents. Of course, it was a parent Mother and, and baby, baby screening. Parent and baby screening. I sighed and plopped down in my seat, preparing for a heavily interrupted cinematic experience. But the babies were impeccably behaved. Wow. I had one solitary cry, swiftly snuffled out by the, an attentive parent. There were no phone lights, no slurpy fizzy drink sounds, no crunchy popcorn, just the occasional approving gurgle from the younger members of the audience. In short, it was the most code-compliant audience I had sat with at a cinema for years. Big up to those babies and their parents. I hope that these wonderful budding cinephiles appreciate the film as much as I did. Tiggly tonk and so on. Thank you, Richard in Sheffield. Uh, 85058, mail at bbc.co.uk, 4.11, what else is new? Well, let's do a few. So Brittany runs a marathon, which is uh, stars Gillian Bell, who we've seen in numerous TV shows and often had supporting roles in uh, features. She plays Brittany, whose life is somewhat becalmed. We see her out with her friends, living a life which looks like it's party, but is actually a nightmare. She's lonely, unhappy, looking for solace in alcohol, depressing sexual encounters and drugs. Here she is at her doctor's. What brings you in today? Uh, I have a hard time focusing. Mm. You get enough sleep every night? How much is enough? Six to eight hours. Oh, way more than that. <laughs> That's not the problem. <laughs> uh. But I, I had a friend who was also just very out of it, and she was prescribed, um, what is it, Adderall? And now she's very alert. You know, some people abuse Adderall for recreational purposes. What? Yeah. That's crazy. It's true. I'm sorry you have to deal with that. Well, I do. Yeah. All the time. Then what happens is he says, look, your problem's nothing to do with that. Your problems are that your body mass index is all wrong and you need to, you know, get yourself fit, which she doesn't want to do. But inevitably, it spurs her into action and she finds that she has decided to run a marathon. And as she does so, as she prepares for doing this, her life starts to change. A neighbour who once seemed to be an enemy becomes an ally. A friend who once seemed to be just an acquaintance becomes something more. She starts to redefine herself physically and mentally, but at what cost? Um, Tonally, I think it's kind of aiming for that same sort of quirky rom-com feeling that that it's very best we had in the big sick. And I don't think this is in the same league as that by any means. I mean, as uh, written and directed by Paul Stanskletto, which is his feature, feature debut, I don't think it has anything like that spark. It is apparently inspired by uh, the story of his roommate, 
who we do see uh, in the credits. So there is a, you know, the, the hint of a true story behind it. There are some fun supporting performances. Uh, Utkash uh, Ambudkar is, is, is really funny. And there are some individually nice moments, but it feels the whole thing felt like it wanted to be more crowd pleasing than I found it actually was. It's, it's okay. It's, it can't quite get itself tonally right. It's very difficult to get that balance between you know on the one hand something which is a which is a crowd pleaser on the other hand there's that quirky indie rom-com feel about it and it just it didn't completely gel for me there were big sections in which i could see the writing i could see the mechanics of it working but there are as i said there are some individually good performances and there are individual moments that are quite funny and she is a very funny screen presence uh okay britney runs a marathon britney runs a marathon and a reasonable uh, outage, do you think uh, for that? Reasonable. I mean, not huge, but 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 reasonable. I would think. Okay. You know? I mean, and as I said, she's she's a very accomplished uh, comic performer. Also, what what she has to do in this is she has to do that balance between you know pathos and comic comedy and pathos tragedy. And I think she does manage to. Do it. I think the. I wish the film was better than it was. Uh, later, uh, in fact, probably after four thirty, after we've done the TV movie of the week, uh, we might even get a chance to discuss the E word. Oh yes, and your documentary. Oh yes, thank which you. Is, you know, which is still available. Yeah. So, but, but that depends on how much time we have, and it, yeah. it would be awful if it kind of fell off the edge. So let's. It make would sure be awful. That, let's make sure that we do have enough time sure to do that. that. It doesn't. Quarter past okay. four. What else have we got after the wedding? which is a domestic drama written and directed by Bart Freundlich and based on a Danish-Swedish film by Suzanne Beer, which I haven't seen. The original was written by Anders Thomas Jensen and Suzanne Beer, and I've read the synopsis of the original, and what I know about this version of it is that it essentially flips the gender roles of the original setup. So Michelle Williams is Isabel, young woman working in an orphanage in Kolkata, she doesn't have children of her own, but she has become very maternal towards one young boy who they picked up on the streets and took into the home, and she has sort of developed a very strong bond with him. It turns out that there is an investment opportunity that would mean that they will be funded, but in order for this to happen, she has to go to America to go and meet the potential investor. She says, I don't want to go, um, but she's told, well, you have to go. The investment is absolutely dependent upon you going. She says, well, I don't want to leave, you know, the kid up. It doesn't matter, you have to go. So she goes. And she goes and she meets uh, Tracy Young, who's this businesswoman played by Julianne Moore, who is kind of dynamite businesswoman in the process of selling her company who wants to make the charitable investment. And she thinks at first that the all she has to do is meet her and the things in the bag. But when she meets her, it becomes apparent that, no, 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 she's one of several people who the money may go to. So let's, spe- you know, spend some time, delay your, delay your trip back, spend some time with us. Incidentally, my daughter's getting married tomorrow why don't you come along to the wedding and uh you know so she goes along to the wedding and when she gets to the wedding and this is done largely through gesture rather than when she gets to the wedding and she sees the couple and she sees the child she reacts with something akin to shock and immediately sort of goes off to be on her own and then is pursued by an annoying wedding guest i couldn't agree more i am not into weddings to be alone. Tell me about it. Crowds are awful. Okay, I can take one for the team and drink them both. <laughs> <clears throat> you know how at every wedding there are always a few single people pretending not to care they're single? Well, um, we're those people. <laughs> it's weird, right? I'm 
divorced. What's your story? Get away from me. So clearly something very bad or something quite cataclysmic has happened. Now, although I, I haven't seen the trailer, so I don't know how much the trailer reveals. And some people may be aware of the original film, but I don't know. So without wishing to say anything more about the plot, essentially the moment that she claps eyes on Billy Crudup's character, Oscar, who is an artist, the reaction in her face pretty much tells you what you, you, you can see almost immediately Oh, I see. I see. I see what this is, and that's not a criticism. That's uh, that's praising because it's the film is you know it's telling you the story and it's telling it through you know show don't tell, and in a way we kind of then know everything about how it will play out, or at least we know almost everything because after the initial revelation of the first act, there is subsequent revelations which I have to say from my point of view, were rather too neat for my liking. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the film has divided critics, that some people have really taken against it and uh, others have praised the performances. The performances are actually very, very good, as you would expect from a cast of this calibre. I mean, particularly in the, the the two central leads of Julianne Moore and Michelle Williams, one of them is you know all trembling nerves and you know, everything on the outside literally telegraphing every emotion the other is somebody who's playing this very kind of enclosed businesswoman who's in charge of everything and telling people where to go and but clearly keeping secrets to herself and gradually we come to see through the course of the drama that they are to some extent two sides of the same coin the drama itself swings between moments of beautifully observed tiny detail and actually much more melodramatic, overarching narrative, which starts to creak under the weight of its own contrivance and is, as I said, far too neat. So it's strange. It is a strange mix of astringent in its individual scenes, but very soapy in its over. And the more it goes on, the more it moves towards that kind of uh, soapy melodrama. But I think it's brought back from the brink by the strength of the performances, which I felt were, were, were very strong and very committed. It's flawed. It's not perfect by any means. Um, but I thought it was actually odd, oddly moving, even although the, the, the level at which it was contrived, dramatically contrived, as the various reveals happen, I started to try my patience. So, uh, sorry, we missed you. Is a new movie uh, which is which is out yeah. this week. Plus, uh, we have we have this exorcist stuff. I'm just going to be an on air production meeting. Yeah. Though obviously we're not producers. No, because we have our top production team who are basically about editors. to tell us what to do. They're editors. Yeah. Uh, should we do exorcist now, or do you want to do Ken Loach? Well, let's do Ken Loach, and okay. then if we have any time at the end of that, we'll talk a bit about about you know. Exactly. Are you, are, you, are you saying uh, that Ken Loach is kind of more important than, than your documentary? Yes. Fair enough. Okay. Well argued. That's it, pretty Ken, much. Okay, Ken, so Ken Sorry Loach, Missed then. You, which is the new film by Ken Loach and writer Paul Laverty, which in many ways functions as a kind of companion piece to I, Daniel Blake. Uh, that dealt with people struggling, people on benefits struggling to survive. This deals with people in work struggling to survive. Uh, Ricky is a grafter who once dreamed of owning his own uh, house with his wife and his kids. Financial crash, everything changed. Suddenly the possibility of mortgages coming through hadn't happened. So now many years later on, he's done a number of different jobs and he needs to change his situation. And he goes uh, for an interview to become a delivery man. 
And the company that he's working for is one of these, it's kind of zero hours gig economy. Um, You don't work for us, you work with us. It's not wages, it's fees. It's an opportunity for you to become the master of your own destiny. You're freed from the sort of slavery of being wasted. You know, you're the master. You're in control of your own your own hours. You take care of everything's your own responsibility. Which all of this is basically a way of saying you're freed from the rights of us to to give you basic workers' rights because you're not employed. You are basically looking after yourself. So, from the very beginning, it appears that this. You know, he he thinks that there's an opportunity there in which he can make it work if he just puts in the hours because he is a hard worker. But the very first thing they have to do is, well, he has to have his own van. And in order to get his own van, he has to put down a deposit, which is going to involve his partner, Abby, who is an overstretched care worker, selling her car so that she will now have to get between the jobs that she does on the bus. And each job that she does, she's already overstretched because she's not allowed to spend the amount of time with each person she goes to see that she wants to. Her motto is, you treat them all like your ma'am. But she's not able to because the travelling time she's not paid for and the bus fare she's not paid for. And there are just simply not enough hours in the day to do what she does. As far as he's concerned, if something happens in his life and he doesn't turn up for work, he gets fined. If something happens in his job, he carries all the risk for the loss of equipment or for the loss of parcels. No matter what happens, everything comes back to... He keeps being told, it's all your choice. It's all your choice. And as he discovers, he has less and less choice. Plus, the job itself is insanely demanding because it's back-breaking days trying to hit a bunch of time-specific deadlines with, you know, if you've ever waited in, oh, your parcel will be due, you know, sometime between here and then. We all go, oh, well, the parcel was meant to be due between here and here and it didn't turn up. Well, maybe one of the reasons it didn't is because the poor person trying to get it to you is working to a schedule that is impossible and often when they get there, they are not fondly greeted. Hi, mate. Take this parcel for Mr Campbell. Uh, Robert, not me. Keeps on parking in me parking space. Right, but well, can you not just sign for it? Good here. Cheers, man. Just uh, please. Can I have your last name? I can't read it. No, that's how you're gonna get, mate. You know. Right, but I need your last name. Big data. Big what? Big data. It's What's when it? when people start hoovering up all our pers- personal information and putting it in that black box. Tell you, I'll be getting brochures for blow up dolls next. You know what I mean? Well, that's probably what this is. And so, as the job goes on, the diff- I mean, something as always with uh, with Ken, like there's an element of light and shade. He gets chased by dogs. He gets you know ticketed by traffic wardens. Everything he has to take on the responsibility for, and in order to deal with it, he just has to work more and more. And as he has to work more and more, and as Abby has to work more and more, the two kids that they have, who are eleven and fifteen, I think is the son are spending less and less time with their parents, despite the fact that they both evidently need and crave time with their parents. Um, Here's the thing. You know at the beginning of the film where it's going, because uh, it's a Ken Loach, Paul Laverty drama about a very real uh, issue, which is, you know, much in the news at the moment about what happens when people are effectively excluded from essential employment rights by the circumstances under which they do their job. So it's it's a film in which we know that the narrative doesn't have a happy ending. And it's possible at the very beginning of the film to say, OK, I, I know how this is going to, to play out. It's also, it's very tough because it's like watching a drama that starts at a point of, you know, 
anxious. I mean, I'm a, I'm a anxious at the beginning for the state of you know what's going to happen as soon as I say, well, you need to put down this money, you need to do this. You know that this that this is just all going to spiral, and you know that what you're going to watch is a family who were played very convincingly by people who characters you believe in in circumstances you believe in, and you're going to see the the, the screws of pressure being turned more and more on them. I don't think it's in the same league as I, Daniel Blake, which I think managed to address its social issues brilliantly, but also managed to engage on a dramatic level in a way which, for me, this didn't quite, partly because I was saying this before, although it's a strange comparison, I talked about after the wedding having a kind of schematic um, line to the to the narrative. And to some extent, I think that is true of... Uh, of this film i think that it's much easier at the beginning to sort of see how the thing will play out and there is a sense of grinding desperation then again the there are moments of levity there's a lovely scene when the family share a curry there's a lovely day out a father daughter sort of bonding scene although you know in this world no good deed goes unpunished so there are cracks of light in the darkening uh environment but it's very tough it's very downbeat, and I think it is arguable that that is because the situation that it is depicting is not one which is full of glimmers of hope. But I confess that in whereas I, Daniel Blake, grabbed and, th- and thrilled me as a piece of drama, this felt much more like a very, very bleak missive from the edge of something. Uh, Katie Steele... Um Back in the Tyneside Cinema, three years on from I, Daniel Blake, once again for the premiere of a Ken Loach film set in Newcastle. As Ken himself said in the post-film Q&A, the family in this film could have been Daniel's neighbours. We saw the relentless pressure of a world of work which makes you wee in a bottle rather than allow toilet breaks and sets an amazing, sympathetic carer, an unachievable schedule which costs for transport between... Visits not included. Yes. As the I pressure said. blew up in the actions of the children in the family and their performances were outstanding, raw and real. Somehow the film felt, to me, angrier than its predecessor. It, yes, it does. It does it feel angrier. no way out, just as there was no way out for the family. A tough but essential film and in the run-up to Christmas maybe a necessary check on the impact of our online ordering. Well, I mean, that I think it almost, and thank you for that very eloquent uh, email, which I said more eloquently than I did, almost exactly the same thing, that it's that's the thing, it feels angry and it also feels bleaker. And I personally, I think that makes it a tougher uh, piece of drama and not necess- and not a better piece of drama because one of the reasons that I, Daniel Blake, worked was because it, it felt more dramatically complete to me. But I agree that it's because maybe that the situation is so bleak. So yesterday was uh, oh, yeah. Halloween, you. October 31st, so November the 1st today, and uh, Exorcist was back out. Well, it was it was played at the Prince Charles. I yes. think they played so, it at the Prince Charles, Andrew yes. Andrew J, I know, do we have a lobby correspondent? I think we might have... Uh, On The Exorcist? Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. So Andrew J Smith says, after years of waiting, I was finally able to see The Exorcist, the best movie Simon will never see on the big screen. <laughs> it was tremendous and powerful, one of the most effortlessly enthralling and intricately made movies I've ever had the pleasure of watching. I'm so pleased I held off to watch it projected with a flickering light in a dark room full of shuffling shadowy strangers, I think. I could gush for paragraphs but thought an audio review might be more fun and tempted though I was, I thought better of sending it recorded backwards, though that would have been... <laughs> that would have funny. been very good. No one, mate. So lobby correspondence here features myself, one very silent Chris Hyde, 
the man who organised our little treat, uh, and a guest appearance, post-credits, if you will, of one Andy Greer, who you'll have to forgive. He's an audio designer, you see. <laughs> so, this is from, so this is Andrew being the lobby correspondent with his mates. Just been to see Exorcist at Prince Charles Cinema with two friends. Two of us haven't seen it before. Uh, it was shocking and disturbing, and I think unlike most modern horror movies, it earns every single second of it. The end. <laughs> and that's it. Is that the wah? Yeah. Uh, so, Excellent. Uh, uh, thank you for that. If you want to be a lobby correspondent, you can just record yourself when you come out of a movie. Uh, tell us your thoughts and keep it brief. That brief is what we want. And if you haven't seen The Exorcist, like me, but you would like to see Mark talk about The Exorcist with him looking like he's 18 years old and pretending to be from South London yeah. or somewhere else, who knows, then the Fear of God documentary... Well, it, we discussed this elsewhere on the podcast, but well, we will discuss it. You're in a temporal loop. We haven't okay. done it yet. Well, anyway, it's yeah. it's a very good it's a very good thing. Thank and I've, you. I've got halfway through, and I need to watch the rest. But you look amazing, mm-hmm. uh, and your voice is just utterly ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous, and it's on BBC iPlayer. It's 21 years old. We made that documentary 21 years ago. It, in, it interviews with everyone who was involved in the Exorcist centrally. I'm hugely proud of it, and I'm very grateful to the BBC for putting it back on iPlayer. And I'm also very grateful to Simon Poole from this show, who was the person who suggested to me that I ask iPlayer to do it. So thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, have you bought him a gift or something like that? No. Okay. That's, that I'm grateful, in, but, you know, gr- gratitude knows its bounds. Exactly. I'll take right. him for a beer. I think that seems fair enough. In the next half hour, TV Movie of the Week and TV Movie of the Week So Bad It's Bad, what are you going to be doing? Doctor Sleep, Making Waves, Earthquake Bird. Do you think there are many people who, when you say Doctor Sleep, hear in their heads... Doc, 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 Doctor Sleep. That's what I hear. Do you think there's anyone else? <laughs> I think- is it just us? I think it's just us. Speaking of podcasts, yes, we were inviting we ourselves were. onto Brexit Cast uh, as their special guests. Uh, and well, hang on. we say we were inviting ourselves on. We were we were making ourselves available. We we're just <laughs> telling them that they, obviously we'd add enormously to their program. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, going on. Fortunately, the Fortunately, fortunately podcast, yeah, Pete Glover has already tweeted saying, "Come on, fortunately, any time." From Brexit Cast, not a whisper, nothing. And there, in a nutshell. Is the difference. It, it's almost as One. though Laura Koonsberg, Chris Mason, Katya Adler and Adam yes, Fleming... we're calling you out. ...have anything else on their plate. <laughs> it's not a busy news week, is it? TV movie of the week. Oh, sorry, we're doing Alison that right. Sa- yeah, hang, on, right. hang on, hang on, hang on, no, carry on. Alison Saunders, Queen of Catway for me, a rarity of a Disney film that not only centred on family and the ever-present happy ending, but tackled the subjects of prejudice, poverty and racism through the medium of chess. I love this fresh, beautifully shot and totally unexpectedly captivating movie, as did I. Um, uh, <clears throat> that's me speaking, by the way. Yeah. Do you know who was uh, at one point earmarked to direct Queen of Catway? Remind me. Barry Jenkins. I think I did know that. Do you know why you know it? Because you told me. Because I told you. Very good. Uh, Emma Backle, Queen of Catway for me, saw it on a flight, so was full of owls, but being a film crier like Dr. K, I reckon I'd blub at ground level too. Truly heartwarming, true story. No obvious prettying up of life in the slums of Kampala, surprisingly, for a Disney film. Great performances from an unknown cast, plus the splendid David Oyelowo and Lupita Nyong'o. Don't care what Mark... (laughs) goes for so no actually i should mention when she say so no n-e-r so no when um when i did the interview with lapita nyongo for black panther yeah which was and it was all fine it was just okay but it was fine you know stuff she'd been asked many times before as soon as i mentioned queen of catway she lit up you know it was one of those that i would like to talk about because it was one of those films that kind of got 
yeah. overlooked, even though David Yellow came on the programme and talked about it. Yeah. Christopher Daly, The Goonies is a fun-packed comedic thrill ride that brings back some amazing childhood memories. Also, oh no, alas, it's on at a sensible time, so doubt it will get the nod by the bequiffed doctor, but then Queen of Catway is on at sensible o'clock, so maybe there's a chance The Goonies will never say we weren't picked for TV Movie of the Week. Paul Clark. Brawl in cell block 99. Low budget, dark and ultimately shocking, brutal and very different side to Vince Vaughan. Really? Yes. Shirley Jane, election, absolutely brilliant film. Gotta love Tracy Flick. Dave Fleming on Twitter. Attack the Block has great early performances from two future sci-fi icons, John Boyega and Jodie Whittaker. But it has to be Beetlejuice for me. Mark will choose Queen of Catway. And John Muller on Twitter, hands down the Vikings from 1958. Rousing adventure, splendid cinematography by Jack Cardiff and scenery chewing by the entire cast. <laughs> hail Ragnar and hail Ragnar's beard. What's our TV movie of the week? I'm going to go for Queen of Catway, which I think Miranea did a brilliant job with. And uh, as you rightly say, Chitology uh, 4 came on. Is that right? Yes. yes if... No, David Yellow. David Yellow came on and uh, was absolutely, sorry, was absolutely brilliant. But I think that the thing that was so great about it was a movie that told a story that sounded like, um, you know, this this isn't going to be the most cinematically inspiring thing. And it was absolutely crowd-pleasing, you know, runaway. I thought it was just just terrific. And Mirren did a terrific job with taking that story and making it cinematic and heartwarming. And, yeah, it was great, absolutely great. And when's that on? Uh, that is on at half past three on Saturday on BBC Two, which is a perfectly sensible time. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Choices, Hangover Part 3, Exodus, Gods and Kings and Resident Evil, colon, Retribution. P. Blair says, uh, I still haven't forgiven my partner for getting me to watch Exodus. It's not OK. <laughs> Lee Whitnell, if a comedy generates no laughter, does it really exist? If the answer is yes... Then it has to be Hangover 3, a truly dreadful film. Tim Parks. How is Starsky and Hutch on this list? Yeah, because Starsky and Hutch is perfectly fine. I don't know why it's on the list. I remember enjoying it. Simon? Yeah. Take it all back. Oh, Simon didn't like it. So that's that's how it works. Andrew Perkis. Starsky and Hutch is the biggest letdown remake of a TV show gets my vote. Richard Walker. Remind me again, which one is Retribution? The ridiculous one, the terrible one, the boring one, the okay one, the surprisingly okay one, or the embarrassing (laughs) one? Simon Wright, I'd go for the historically accurate Exodus, Gods and Kings. Sean of his undead bed, uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, is a vapid waste of two hours and 30 minutes. It should be watched in your youth and not in the twilight years of life when you've come to realise that every second is precious. And Chris Moran, I will go with Resident Evil colon Retribution because it's the only one I've seen and it was pants. Mark will choose The Hangover Part 3 because it has the words The and Hangover. Hangover in the title. What is TV Movie of the Week? So bad it's bad. The Hangover Part 3. It's really, there's just no choice. It's horrible. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Uh, it's horrible. You can, can avoid, avoid it. it. You can avoid that on s- 9 at night on Saturday on ITV. I'll make sure I do. Yep. 12 minutes past four. This is Five Live. What else have we got out? Doctor Sleep. Doc, 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 doc Sleep. A lot of people going, and what? Uh, and also, how do you think that's playing with our with our newly improved I think, under thirty five? I think they're what they're thinking is <laughs> before the news. Could you actually play us the original so that we know what the musical connection is? Five thousand volts is in case you're looking for it, and then we could just play a little clip. Okay, very yeah. good. That's five. That's the name of a band. It's not not a suggestion. Yeah. No, okay. So, um, 
Stephen King was famously dissatisfied by Stanley Kubrick's film of The Shining, although I have to say he is clearly happier, at least at the moment, with the, with the sequel. On Twitter, he said, I know, it's, quoting the, the writer of a work that's in the cinema, obviously there's a promotion, but he says on this, Mike Flanagan is a talented director, but also an excellent storyteller. This movie is a good thing. You'll like it if you like The Shining, but you'll also like it if you like Shawshank. It's immersive which is an interesting comment on it. So essentially what this does is it blends elements of Stephen King's novel and Kubrick's film, iconic elements from Kubrick's film. And it's written and directed by Mike Flanagan, picks up the story story of Danny Torrance decades after his an escape from, a, you know, an axe-wielding father. I don't think that's any kind of plot spoiler no. at the end of The Shining, is everyone knows how The Shining ends. Um as played by Ewan McGregor, he's a wreck. He's struggling with depression and addiction issues. And, of course, Danny's key thing was The Shining, the ability to see things which others could not see, which is explained to him for the first time when he arrives uh, at the Overlook Hotel. Of course, there are others out there in the world who have the ability to shine. Um, Danny finds work in a, in a hospice where his power to connect with people who are connect with people telepathically or at least you know psychokinetically is a comfort and hence the doctor sleep thing then he meets abra carly curran who is 13 years old and has similar powers with whom he is telepathically connected and with whom he feels a kinship here's a clip you're magic like me i don't know about magic i i always called it the shining and yeah we both shine do your parents know? About my shine? They don't talk about it. Or if I use it, they look at me different. When I was a kid, I didn't understand the shining. I called it Tony. I thought he was my imaginary friend. I thought you were my imaginary friend. For a long time. How many of us are out there? There's a lot of people who have a little bit of shine. They don't even know it. They always seem to come home with flowers when their wives are sad or they do well in a school test they didn't study for. But I only met two or three people in my whole life who knew they shined. I, I love that thing about for ages I thought you were my imaginary friend. So shiners, uh, people who have the shining, um, are also, it turns out, being sought by a sort of parasitical uh, clan, True Not, who actually could have stepped out of one of the Twilight films. And again, I don't say that as a criticism because I like the Twilight films. Led by Rex Ferguson's Rose the Hat, who, as you would guess from the name, wears a sinister oh, really? hat. And somebody yeah. has already tweeted in saying, do you think it's influenced by the fields of Nephilim? Fields of Nephilim, Nephilim. Yeah. And she yeah. was talking about the hat last week. She was, yeah, and about the fact that there was, there was only ever one version of it because it was so specifically described. So, uh, essentially, Danny has to step back into the fray in order to fend off this gathering, uh, this gathering threat. And it's the scene is set for a confrontation. And as I said last week in the interview um, with Rebecca Ferguson, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that the Overlook features as a character in the third act of the film. We know that things, that's where it's going to lead. The interesting thing about the film is this. I went into it with a great sense of trepidation because um, people have such high regard for The Shining and it's become such a milestone of uh, you know, modern cinema and people think of it and modern horror. Many people think it's the scariest film they ever saw, which always surprised me because I never found The Shining scary. I think it's atmospherically interesting and I think that it's sort of portrayal of a family falling apart 
is, you know, fascinating. But I, I've never thought it was a scary film. I think there are individual uh, images in it, such as the the lift full of blood, such as, you know, what happens when you open the door and you see what's behind the door. I think those I- images are creepy, but I never actually found the, the Shining scary. I know other people do. I don't. In the case of this, it really isn't setting out to be a scary film. It's it has the same sense of damaged childhood that is a theme that runs throughout Stephen King's work. Stephen King's written a lot about young people who have an ability that they don't really understand and that marks them out. So, for example, you think right back to Carrie, when the whole thing with Carrie is that she's telekinetic and her mother therefore thinks that she's cursed, you know, the day that she brought the stones. You think back to Firestarter, which made a terrible film with the phantom hairdryer, but it's actually a much better novel. It's not a great novel, but it's an interesting novel about the fact that she's a, that there is pyrokinetic abilities. And that imperiled childhood and repeated history theme is something which runs throughout Stephen King's work. I mean, Stephen King always related The Shining back to The Haunting of Hill House, the idea in The Haunting of Hill House that that the central character goes to a house which is meant to be haunted and kind of discovers that she is the haunting that haunts the house, that she was always there and she will always be there, which is an idea that we see completely replicated in The Shining. Um, Like it the success of which has pretty much allowed Dr. Sleep to exist. This isn't um, something which sets out to uh, function primarily as an exercise in fear. It's much more a kind of episodic psychological journey with an interest in that kind of outsider kid thing and what happens when people grow up after outside and it's all traumatic events what happens with the past when it's moved forward into the future and suddenly you're an adult but you're still having to deal with all the stuff that you were dealing with when you were a kid as i said like there is an odd comparison here with twilight which i'm sure that many fans of the film may not appreciate but i don't mean it as a as a bad comparison at all because i think that it has some similar shared ideas because I think that Twilight is about much more than its, than its detractors would allow. And because there are sections of the film that quote very cheekily from uh, Kubrick's iconic images, there are many times at which the film sets itself up to be knocked down by, by invoking its comparison with a, with a much-loved predecessor. What I would say about Doctor Sleep is this. I think it's actually pretty good. I went in thinking that it might well be pretty bad, because it's, you know, the standard question is, it's a sequel to The Shining. Where are you going to go? I mean, look what happened when you did a sequel to The Exorcist. You've got Exorcist to The Heretic, the stupidest film ever made by anyone ever. Um, it isn't something that I would think of as primarily a horror film. I think of it much more in that kind of Stephen King thing about, as I said, episodic psychological journey. I think it's made by somebody who has a good deal of respect for the original film, but also a good deal of respect for the original text. And if you're a Kubrick fan, you may well, if you're a fan of Kubrick's The Shining, you may well really take against it. But if you're a fan of Stephen King, I think you will feel much more sympathetic towards it. And I thought it was much better than I had expected. Colin Everson in Dublin, as a massive fan of Stephen King and The Shining in particular, I've always understood his gripes with Kubrick's film. Though it is undoubtedly a masterpiece, it's not King's story. Kubrick's uh, characters... And, and it's going to say, in a nutshell, that is Stephen King's gripe, is that it's not, not Stephen King's The Shining, it's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And Kubrick's characters bear little resemblance to their book counterparts, and the emotional core of King's novel is almost entirely absent in the film. 
King's Jack Torrance is an ordinary man battling ghosts, both real and psychological, who's trying to keep his family together and who you empathise with and root for. Kubrick's is Jack Nicholson. Is Jack Nicholson. Who, King descri- who from, from the very first moment you describe him, is a whole bag of crazy. As King describes it, his story has warmth, whereas Kubrick's was cold. I like both versions of the story, but I was worried that this film would fall between two stools trying to be a sequel to both. However, I needn't have been. Mike Flanagan has managed to keep the emotional heart of King's story while evoking the chilling spectre of Kubrick's film, and it works perfectly. The film is admittedly on the long side, but I really liked it. And I liked how it took its time, slowly building the conf- uh, the confrontation with Rose the Hat, while the overlook looms large in the background, waiting to be woken up. I'll certainly be seeing it again. Um, Jack in Manchester, The Shining is my favourite film. Therefore, I went to see this opening night, uh, showing of Doctor Sleep with some trepidation. Mike Flanagan is a good director. Surely in safe hands. Well, I'm not sure if Flanagan is to blame or Stephen King's original story because the sequel to Shining felt more like a Harry Potter meets vampire superhero movie. Can I just say that, uh, although that's a criticism, the vampire superhero movie thing is what I was alluding to with the Twilight comparison, and I don't see it as a criticism. Jack, I think, does. No, no, exactly. Not scary, muddled storytelling, boring characters that meandered for far too long certainly sent me to sleep. A potentially interesting second act was ruined entirely by the third. Far too many shot-for-shot remakes that left me shaking my head in shock every time it happened. And the audience was actually laughing at some of the supposed scary scenes uh, meant to evoke the original film. I don't often leave the cinema angry, but I did here. Something tells me there is room for a potential sequel to this, starring the new characters, probably the scariest thing about the film just awful i hated it okay Jack fair enough manchester well there we go so uh, two very different perspectives mayo at bbc.co.uk by the way we know uh, i apologize for uh, losing all pop credentials which maybe i did a while ago but dr beat was not five thousand volts that they did dr kiss kiss so dr. Our, kiss, incessant, kiss. our incessant reference to doc doc doctor doctor sleep doctor beat is this i just don't Exactly. There you go. Gloria Estefan and Miami Sound Machine. Exactly right. Thank you very much indeed. And nothing to do with 5,000 volts. Uh, seven minutes to five. What else we got? Okay, so Making Waves, The Art of uh, Cinematic Sound, which is a documentary directed by Mitch Costin. Um, documentary about sound in cinema, how it's made, how it evolved, how it works. Loads of interviews, including Spielberg, saying early on that he has always felt that sound directs our ears when directs our eyes when watching a movie. Sorry, I've got an old man's brain happening today. When we're watching a movie, our ears direct our eyes. So it's often the sound that tells us what it is that we should be looking at in the screen. We hear from sound editors and mixers about how sound evolved. It traces it back to Edison recording sound and thinking about adding visuals as an addition. We see... We hear about silent cinema and music that was played to accompany silent cinema, which is also occasionally done with sound effects. As you know, I play in a band who accompany silent films. And it is absolutely true that early on, even though they often weren't playing to score, they were often playing just, you know, whatever music happened to be around at the time. In the sort of the, the upper end of performance of silent films, you would 
get sound effects. You would get people, you know, performing sound effects as the film happened. In fact, at one point, we see some Foley artists adding sound to, I think it's a Griffith, and it's which is really sort of weird. Um, then the arrival of discs. Funnily enough, I was at the Regent Centre recently playing a silent cinema, and there's when they when sound cinema first happened, it wasn't complete. It wasn't things went from being silent cinema to being sound cinema. I mean, silent cinema was never silent anyway, but there was there would be talking sections, and they often went out on discs, these great big discs. And there is a famous story that I was told at the Regent Cinema, the cinema a film arriving with the discs and sending a message back to the distributors saying, you know, uh, films opened, all records broken. And them saying, that's brilliant. No, no, all records broken. We need a new set of the discs. Um, there was shellac, boom, boom. Um, then the birth of stereo sound and what we now think of as surround sound. And it picks out a couple of key movies, Star Wars, how, you know, Lucas and cohorts changed the industry. Barbara Streisand is a pioneer of sound development. And there's an awful lot of stuff, of course, about Walter Murchpocalypse now. We hear from Sophia Coppola, Ryan Coogler, Robert Redford, Ang Lee, Ben Burke. So it's a pretty wide uh, scope of interviews, with the exception of the fact that the interviews are largely, and the film itself is largely, to do with the American film industry. So we hear some very, very interesting observations about how the wind was a character in Brokeback Mountain, how in Top Gun they used animal noises for dogfights. There's a little bit of David Lynch and we discussion of his relationship with Alan Splett. Um, and it, there are, it's very nice to see a, a much more gender-balanced set of interviews than perhaps you would sometimes expect. I mean, so many film documentaries have been made in which, you know, it does look like films are made by a bunch of blokes. Um a lot of Tom Hanks. Uh, the My only uh, reservation about it is it did feel absolutely, it felt very, very American and very, very like its history of cinema was in a very specific location, a very specific part of cinema. But, you know, that's probably just me griping. I think it's interesting that anybody should make a documentary that's very accessible about the way in which cinematic sound works. I'd like to be a real bore and put my hand up and say... Look at the work that you know Buzz Knudsen and Mercedes McCambridge did on The Exorcist. That is a if real. Was, uh, if only there was a documentary about it in which I, you could find out yeah. about this stuff. Yeah. Also out this week, Netflix. Netflix are everywhere now. So Earthquake Bird, which is this real oddity, directed by Wash Mesmerland, who I think you must have interviewed for Still Alice. Is that right? Mm. Or was it Julianne Moore that you interviewed for Still Alice? Julianne Moore. Okay, I beg your pardon. Um, so, adapted from Zana Jones's novel, which I haven't read, set in Tokyo, I think late 80s. Alicia Vikander is a European translator living in Japan. She's brought in for questioning after her friend has disappeared. And then through flashbacks, we see her relationship with Lily, played by Riley Keough, her relationship with Teiji, played by uh, Naoki Kabayashi, who photographs her without her permission when she's out in the streets and with whom she begins this sort of weirdly controlled and controlling relationship. There's a Zico lens, 50 millimeter. Very fast. Interesting. Is it? Not really. Just trying to make conversation. Why? Because that's what normal people do. But you're not normal. Neither are you. So let's not pretend to be. Okay. Let's just be honest with each other from the beginning. All day long, I watch people talk, saying all kinds of things without saying what they are really thinking. Right. So, what are you really thinking? The, the interesting thing about the film is that, uh, once again, Alicia Vikander pretty much started to learn a whole new language in order to do a role. I mean, it's astonishing. It, the, the level of dedication and linguistic dedication that she brings to a role is just 
astonishing. So the earthquake bird of the title is a bird which may be mythical, may be legendary, which is a bird which you are meant to hear singing in the silence after an earthquake, of which there are many. And her central character comes to believe that she's almost like a lightning conductor for tragedy, that somehow disaster and death follow her. And what plays out is a sort of psycho-noir um, uh, three-way relationship between these three central characters in which the relationships are, on the one hand, passionate, but also oddly chilly and removed. And it's a psychodrama in which the landscape is as much to do with the psychogeography of the interaction of the characters as it is with the landscape in which it, in which it plays out. I think Wash Westmoreland is a very interesting filmmaker. I, you know, he made many films with Richard Glatzer, still Alice is probably the most famous, although Quintiniera is my favourite um, and in fact, Kinthanier is about to turn 15 and I, I've already committed to do it on stage for its 15th birthday. Earthquake Bird is in uh, limited uh, cinema release and uh, then also on Netflix uh, soon. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, I'll be talking to Dame Helen Mirren about her new movie, The Good Liar. Uh, Mark, film of the week. What do you think? Go on, take a guess. Aeronauts? Go on. Doctor Sleep. Well, you were inspirational as ever. Thank you. Young man in a slim suit. We just have time. Squeak this in before the uh, the tape runs out, or whatever the digital equivalent is, for our DVD of the week. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hello, Simon. We have something of an oxymoron on the list this week. It's a French comedy. Uh, <laughs> French comedy, it's no laughing matter. Yeah, is the, exactly, right, the exactly next line. that one then. French comedies come in three broad types. Type one is when an outsider enters a different community and despite their seeming differences, the outsider and the community realise that they are made for each other with hilarious consequences. consequences. Then there's type two, the French musical comedy, which has a jazz soundtrack, people dancing in the streets in pastel clothing and features Catherine Deneuve and a gouloise. Then there is type three, the type where... A man falls over an awful lot <laughs> with a gulwaz. <laughs> Happily, this week's offering is a type two, the best type. Jacques Demy's Le Demoiselle de Rochefort gets a spanking new Blu-ray with all sorts of new extras. I haven't seen Le Demoiselle de Rochefort before, but now I can. Let's see what Le Wittetene Pensez devrait être les choix pour les DVD de la semaine. Dora Pantry. I love Danny Boyle, but think yesterday is one oh, of his Danny few Boyle. misses, along with a very muddled trance. Some years back, I found this a missed opportunity for a film full of potential. This was too squeaky clean and even dull. Too squeaky clean, you say? Alison Saunders' It's a Wonderful Life is a timeless classic, a common man fable whose message is as relevant today as it was in 1946 and which works on so many levels as to make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. I ask you, do you think we'll be sitting down in 70 years to re-watch any of the other films on this list? Good question. Mm. I rest my case. Mm. Daniel Bell, it has to be yesterday, in a proud 12 months of British movies linked to music, we've had Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, Blinded by the Light, and this little gem... I'm hoping last Christmas carries this purple patch on. <laughs> Emma Bembridge, I don't need to buy the yesterday DVDs. I watched it on a plane. Just yesterday. That's what it says. <laughs> I've got psychic powers. And I'm not sure whether it was a charming little movie or I just had some owls. Daddy Karate on Twitter. 
I'd go for Captain America, The Winter Soldier, as it's not only a great Marvel movie, but also a pretty good old-school-style spy movie. Plus, it's got Toby Jones in it. Toby Jones! Finally, Luca on Twitter, Iron Man, no doubt. It was Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback film and the template for MCU success. It's also smart, funny, surprising and endlessly rewatchable. What is our DVD of the week? Strange man from South London. I'm going to disappoint you enormously. No one has chosen the souvenir. No, that's true. Well, why would they? Because I think it's... Oh, yes, Gavin Gibson. Oh, thank you. I thought yesterday was weak, but Mark will probably go for it. Personally, I'm buying the souvenir. Very good. I liked yesterday very much, but I think the souvenir is really terrific. And it's a Joanna Hogg film, which is inspired by, based on, you know, a relationship that she had at a key moment in her life about which the details are still sketchy. She is currently finishing The Souvenir Part 2, and Souvenir, I think, is her best and most, uh, I I think, most accessible work, although it's still pretty chilly. And I'm also going to go for Les Demoiselles de Rochefort as the re-release, not least because I want you to say it again with your lovely French accent. Uh, Oui, bon, c'est ça. (laughs) Jacques Demise, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort. Les Demoiselles... De Rochefort. And its sequel, La Plume de Matante. Avec. Le chat est sur la, la branche. Is that right? Jacques Malchance n'a pas de chance. Merci et au revoir. What's that mean? Jacques Malchance. Jack, has, bad chance. Has got no chance. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's it. Enough of this. It's all rubbish now. It's, but let's fade out. Let's fade out. Do you know why is it? Why did, the, why did the Frenchman only have one egg? Is this going to be a racist joke? Why did the Frenchman only have one egg? Because oh, I, I've worked it out. Because one egg is, is enough. enough. This is solid gold. They don't do that on one extra, do they? That's definitely going to get a Sony. Oh, they don't do them anymore, do they? There's no such thing. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> BBC Sounds Music Radio Podcasts. Here's a question. A man escapes from one of the world's most brutal dictatorships. He's risked everything to do it. But once he's free, he digs a hole and he tunnels straight back in again. Why? I'm Helena Merriman, and over the past six months, I've been investigating an extraordinary escape story for BBC Radio 4. A story involving a tunnel, a spy and an American TV network. To subscribe, search for Intrigue Tunnel 29 on BBC Sounds 